We made mistakes growing the business. We had successes, but we made mistakes. So in 1997, we were the first Hispanic company to hit $1 billion in revenue. Big deal, et cetera, it was amazing. And then we grew 1999, 80, 98, 99, 2000. In 2000, there's a telecom crash. So if you guys recall MCI, all these other companies, they all go out of business. But we're, we did work for them, so we're creditors. So we had to write off half of our receivables. Wow. So at that time, our stock, just to give you a relation, had gotten up to like $60 a share. So in March of 2001, our stock was at $1.31. Wow. Wow. So I have a little sticker on my computer that has a date and says 131. We were basically worth nothing. And I learned a lesson. We are not worth what a number on a screen or a stock is worth. My value is exponentially more than that. It has nothing to do with our stock price, but that was my rallying cry to the troops, right? We're not worth this. Bear down, batten down the hatches. Got it. And so we slowly started getting out of that. Hello. This is that awkward moment before all podcasts, and Nick takes like 20 minutes to get set up. All right, you gotta, so I apologize ahead of time. Okay, we are three minutes yeah. into our scheduled time. This is a record for us, actually. Okay. Are we keeping all the lights on? I mean, I, I don't know, man. You own the place. Yeah, I know. I'll fix that. <laughs> don't you have people that can fix it for you? What do you have no, to get up for? Good. Just keep doing your thing. Okay. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to... Uh, look at this. Oh, man. This is... This is the, this is the sexiest thing that has yeah, ever happened on this podcast. It was the same way when we did it the first time. Uh, I don't know about all that. I think it was. All right. We are recording the third ever episode, uh, live episode of Pancom Podcast. By that, we mean live as in... Uh, with an audience, not live like everybody is watching this now. So if you say some terribly embarrassing thing, please feel free to come up to me later and tell me to cut it out uh, okay. for public consumption. Um, we are in the the kava. Is that what we call this thing? The kava. I gotta say, this is so incredible for me that you oh. actually have someone working the sound next to you. Well, my unpaid my, un- my, my unpaid intern. It's just like no it's negative. It, it, like they don't they think this is actually how it happens every week. Right. We have we have a lot of prop cigar boxes. Yeah. <laughs> it's not how this happens. Lots of, lots much of, more sophisticated than yeah. last right. time. Yeah, yes. Because yes. big time guests, big time people. Everyone's dressed nice. It's a lot of candles just for you and me. Right. There yeah. are are there? Yeah, there are. No, no. I mean, usually we do this weekend week true. out with candles, tablecloth, all that. Um, so we are recording in Ariets or Ariete, as uh, Mike <laughs> likes to say, uh, Cava downstairs uh, in the secret area dungeon. Uh, okay. We are recording our third ever live episode this time around with special guest and I think now Bancom Podcast Hall of Famer. Hall of Famer for sure. Jorge Mas. So you will be invited very soon, I'm sure, to an induction ceremony <laughs> at the tourist bathrooms. That's where the Hall of Fame will be. Uh, just to give a quick rundown of who 
is joining us here, and I would invite uh, uh, people who are uh, around here to just raise your hands when people, um, when you're, you hear your name called so everybody knows who you are. We have uh, Pamela Martinez of uh, Beam Suntory over there, also Joanna Peña of Beam Suntory. We have Jorge Mas, of course, over in the, uh, the guest of honor seat. Brenda and Lawrence Popritkin. Lawrence, uh, please do not call him the hubs. He doesn't like it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you may know Brenda from the wet palette. Uh, there's a trophy of hers sitting. Is it still there, Mike? It is still there. It's still on the bar at Ariet. Still uh, trying to get that number one spot. That's right. <laughs> uh, we, are, we are also joined. <laughs> one, one star is never enough. Yeah, um, no. Uh, by Jonathan Drew, uh, founder of Drew Estate Cigars. I want to shout out Jonathan for all of the cigars and uh, other goodies that you have in front of you, plus an ashtray that is upstairs. By the way, I want to also point out, I should have said this for a joint, uh, Cavassier uh, is what you've been drinking to this point and what you'll be drinking after this point. Uh, thank you to, to them for supporting this and other uh, Pancom podcast events. Uh, Doug Rumsam of, uh, is it Rumsam or Rumsam? Rum Sam. Rum Sam. I got it right the first Rum time. Sam. Of Bordeaux Index. He is responsible for, for providing all of the wines that we will be uh, having as pairings throughout this dinner. He'll also be jumping in uh, to talk a bit about each of these wines as they come out. Um, Mike, are we still having Manny come and talk? Chef Manny will explain each course. Excellent. Uh, we are joined by, uh, for the first time, we're joined with a guest who is also uh, Team uh, Date Media Group slash Pancom Podcast, uh, Tatiana Cárdenas Santovenia over here. So thank you to Tatiana for being That's around. ads at datemag.com. That's right, ads at com. It's all of your money. Care of Tati. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Diego Londoño and Susi Perez from uh, Chef Smoke slash The Barrel, also supporters of Pancom Podcast. They make a pretty kick-ass grill as well, sorry, it's not a grill, it's not a smoker, it's the barrel, um, as well as some hot sauces, some hot sauces that you'll be taking home with you tonight. Uh, Ivan and uh, Ivan, I'm sorry, I, I'm going to attempt this. <laughs> Give it a go. Let's see what you got. Mladenovich. All right. Yeah. Wrap it up, Nick. That's right. Nice. Ivan Mladenovich and Sarah Silver Mladenovich. Uh, Eddie Fuentes is on his way. I hear that he is skidding all over the road to get here from Hialeah, driving very dangerously. Classically to make it to this late. Event. Yeah. And Andy Gasidua, who uh, I am told does all sorts of uh, interesting things for uh, Michael Beltran to keep Great, him out thanks. of trouble. Great, thanks. Keeping Michael Beltran out of trouble full time. Yeah. Um, so, uh, with that, this is where, uh, this is Mike's favorite part of the podcast, where I step away and shut up. It is the best part of That's the podcast. That's right. I, I just want to note, um, again, that, uh, that <laughs> Doug, <laughs> Doug will be jumping in to talk wines uh, as, as they appear, um, and we, I'll, I'll go and hand you the mic in a moment. Um, also, we're going to open it up to Q&A in uh, maybe like the last 20 to 30 minutes, if there is something that you just like really need to get out, like you feel compelled, you know, uh, this is compelling stuff. Yeah, just make sure. So I expect some compelling questions. Yeah, I mean, make sure. But I'm saying, like, if if, if before the Q and A opens up, you just feel like you have to get something out, like it's just so good. Let me know. I'll bring you a microphone, and it's on you if you embarrass yourself and it wasn't worth waiting until the Q and A. Uh, so 
That's it. That's all I got. Michael, the floor is yours. Uh, take it away. Welcome to the next episode of Pancom Podcast with me, your host, and Pancom Podcast Hall of Famer and good friend, Jorge Mas. Thank you for having me, Michael. So last time, um, I don't know, it was, what, two and a half years ago we did this? Yes. Two and a half years ago when we did this, it was right after the world had shut Ten, down. Yes. Yeah. The world had shut down and we're like, this is going to be a few weeks and we're going to be solid. Yes, right. And then we'll be back <laughs> and everything is going to be normal. I think from that point, you were supposed to open the season. Before I get into this, if anyone wants any background, like there's not enough on the internet on who you are, um, you can uh, go to our original episode, which is, I don't know, 175 ago, and you can get all kinds of background on who you are and how we're friends and how we used to be neighbors, but you left me and and why we're here today. So. Uh, Nick is already flagging me down for something. That's right. Doug is going to, uh, we got a wine out, right? Okay. Uh, am I okay. mistaken? Good. There's a wine out? Yeah. Okay. Well, the, the, oh, oh, I, I think it's best to get it out now before, so we're not interrupting. Okay, go ahead. You let it, so, let it rip, Nick. So we're going to start with a 2012 Dom Perignon. Uh, 2012 was a vintage. Uh, there was a lot of curveballs for, uh, for any champagne grower. There was frost, there was hail, there was rain. There was a good August, and it turned into an amazing champagne. Uh, I was just saying to Jorge earlier that um, a, a vintage like that, or the 08 or 02, I would say you can hold on to and revisit in like 10 years. Amazing now, um, but this 2012 Dom Perignon is one of the best. Yeah. Thanks to our sponsor, Aganorsa Leaf Cigars. Aganorsa Leaf is renowned throughout the world for its signature flavor that possesses all the great attributes of Nicaraguan terroir, along with classic Cuban aroma and flavor. Aganorsa Leaf is pleased to announce a brand new edition of Guardian of the Farm, Cerberus, named after the mythical three-headed hound that stood watch at the gates of Hades. This exciting new Nicaraguan puro uses 100% Aganorsa leaf tobacco and is wrapped in Aganorsa's new Corojo 2012 cover leaf, which adds a level of complexity to the blend, adding light spice and a rich, smooth body to the blend. When you smoke one of our world-class blends, you will experience the difference between ordinary tobacco and Aganorsa leaf. That's why we say our leaf is our strength. Learn more about Aganorsa Leaf and use their store locator and find a cigar shop near you that carries their products at www.aganorsaleaf.com. The two of us smoke Aganorsa Leaf cigars often. We also offer them to a lot of our guests, like, for example, Dave Arvello, who every time I post a picture of a, a Cerberus mentions to me in my DMs or in a text how cool the band is, which it actually is a pretty slick-looking band. Um, but also... I just want to note a little personal anecdote here so it's not all totally straight up red. I can say that uh, Michael Beltran will absolutely not only vouch for the quality of Aganorsa cigars, yeah. but you met a uh, Miami legend and handed him an Aganorsa cigar. I did meet uh, uh, a Miami legend. I was smoking nearby Alonzo Morning, and we had a conversation about cigars, and he handed me one of his, and I went inside. I bought this exact same cigar, and I handed Alonzo Morning. This Aganorsa cigar, and I said, "Try this. 
Thank me later. I mean, if that's not an endorsement, I don't know what is. Aganorsalif.com. Introducing the newest line from Jura State Cigars. 20 Acre Farm is a complex, refined, and medium body cigar with a super oaky and cedary notes accompanied by a whisper of white pepper and a bright hint of citrus. Built at La Gran Fabrica, Drew Estate in Nicaragua using a velvety, and I mean velvety, Ecuadorian Connecticut shade grown wrapper. Under that wrapper is a sun-grown Alano binder and a filler blend of Nicaraguan tobaccos from Esteli and Jalapa in perfect balance with the opulent and majestic Florida sun-grown leaf. Florida sun-grown is also the name of the farm where that tobacco is lovingly grown and harvested by Jeff Borshoix, who's the guy you see in his video playing behind us, uh, on his pristine 20-acre plot of land near the central Florida town of Claremont. I have actually been to that farm, along with plenty of other cigar tobacco farms in Mexico, Central America, and the Dominican Republic, and what Jeff, who, by the way, is a very nice guy, there's actually a cigar box signed by Jeff hanging on my wall. Uh, what Jeff is doing there is super legit. Uh, so it's always cool to see products like his, which is the only premium cigar tobacco grown in Florida um, in products from a company like Drew Estate. Plus, 20 Acre Farm being a Drew Estate product means it's the creation of Master Blender and Pancom podcast guest, Willie Herrera. Support our guests and sponsors. Get it online. Ask your local cigar shop about 20 Acre Farm by Drew Estate. Learn more about Drew Estate and use their store locator to find a cigar shop near you that carries their products at DrewEstate.com. That's right. I'm probably going to smoke one of those right now. I, what are we waiting for? So, you know, it was supposed to be the first season, right? Yes. Inaugural season. We were supposed to do a big lunch. A big lunch. Big lunch. It was like a... And the world ended. And then the world ended. Yeah. Listen, well, first of all, again... Um, and I'm glad to see that I am a Hall of Famer now. You are a Hall my of Famer. first Hall of Fame induction. This is a is good it? thing, yes, and anything that's, a, that's fantastic. But first of all, listen, thank you, and I am super proud to be here with you. First, because you're my friend. Second, for your success, for everything you've been able to do. Because two and a half years ago, you know, when we were together, and I think we had a, an amazing time, and we have fun together, and we enjoy each other's company, there was a significant amount of uncertainty oh, in yeah. the world. Um, and what Michael's alluding to is. You know, I got involved in in bringing a major league soccer team uh, to Miami four, four years ago. Um, you know, David Beckham had been given an, an option when he came uh, to play in the United States after he left for Real Madrid, and he happened to pick Miami, our beautiful city, um, which I am a proud native of, and he was having difficulty in getting the team started. And I received a phone call from the commissioner of Major League Soccer to see if I had any interest in getting involved because he needed, obviously, people who had local knowledge and, and could help and acclimate into South Florida. So we met. I flipped to New York. I met with David. We hit it off. We become super close friends. And I thought it was extremely necessary for us to bring to bring a professional soccer team to Miami because, as a, as a frankly, as a, as a Cuban-American, I didn't grow up with, with football or soccer. I was a 
you know, I ended up playing baseball at Columbus and I'm going to get my Columbus plug here. Love that. And, um, Love that. And so Love I grew up listening, playing baseball, football, basketball, and, and the makeup of our community when I was growing up was very, was very different than what it is today. Where we have a significant amount of diversity, especially much more expanded from, you know, South and Central America and the Caribbean, whose first sport is soccer. So when I got involved with the venture of Inter Miami, I was super excited, tried to build a great brand, tried to own the color pink and black and do something very cool for our city to fall in love with it because it was always my aspiration that when people think of football or soccer in the United States that they would immediately think of Miami. And there were a lot of elements to do that. You know, the growth of our city, what we were doing, a truly global city. You know, David Beckham is an important component because he has basically a worldwide audience. You know, the fact that we could bring to everything that had been happening in our community and really with a blank slate because this was a team with no history, no name, no brand, but it was going to allow us to be able to, on a blank canvas, design something. I think that was a reflection of our community, a community based on passion, a community based on our parents, many of us, coming to this country with nothing and building a better future for us. And I think that everything that I've tried to do in our lives, and I know that you've done, is to make our parents and grandparents and our heritage proud so that our kids can learn from an example of that anything and everything is possible if you dream it and if you work hard. So as your friend, congratulations on your success and what you've done. But when we sat back then, you know, we had prepared. Inter-Miami was going to have its its first game on March 12th of 2020. Huge buildup. Game was sold out. Fox on a Saturday it was going to be the most watched soccer game in the history of this country. We had like 1,500 VIPs. He was going to do the event at our training facility up in Fort Lauderdale in our stadium. I was going to have a VIP party. hundred. I, I, at that time, I lived literally yeah. 100 yards from here. Across the street. Across the street. Um, all this was set up. And I'll never forget, this was going to be a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, culminating with a game on Saturday event. And if I don't, if I recall correctly, it was either Monday night or Tuesday. Rudy Gobert from the Utah Jazz uh-huh. had COVID, tested positive, and that changed the sports world. So I'll never forget receiving a phone call and asking me to, you know, we're postponing every major league soccer game. We're going to call the beginning of the season off. But do you want to play your game? You know, because you guys are ready to go, huge TV audience. And so I go, listen, let me think about it and let me get a little bit more informed. I'll let you know later this afternoon. Never forget, I walk in my brother's office and I go, what do we do? Like, we've got a thousand people here. This game sold out. Tickets are going for a thousand dollars in the secondary market. I'll never forget. I told him, I go, you know, it'd be really hard. Imagine if we play this game, then we don't play for three or four weeks. And then our (laughs) second game, you know, is in April or May. That's like, that's like a big gap. Again, how naive we are, right? And then we got into what's COVID, what's not, and do people. And like I said, well, there's nothing about vaccines. Everything's going to shut down. So we made that, that decision that Wednesday to not play and to shut down. Fast forward a few months later, is there a season? What's going to happen to our soccer team? You know, we had we sold, we sold our, all our games were sold out. So it was like it was like a world stopping period of time. And at the time, not to mention with our family business and the thousands of employees that we have at, at Moztec, and it was just, you know, it, it's easier now as we've come out of this, but I remember at that time, my, you know, my kids, you know, they were all away at school. Um, they came here for the opening of the game, and their lives changed. Mm. You know, my, my youngest was playing baseball at Wake Forest. He, he never went back to, the, to school at the time. 
my daughter was working in New York and she started working remotely. She ended up in London two years later to finish her master's. So everyone's lives changed, but I remember the period of time where we were all home yeah. and how our lifestyle changed, right? And Instacart and, and groceries <laughs> being put at, the, at your door and you spent all day with your family. So there was the bad but the wonderful. We did puzzles, we interacted, we were together. It was, a, I think, a true recalibration of what's important in life, right? Like what matters, you know? Listen, it was hard and it was harsh. Imagine with you and, and what happened with the restaurant business and things being closed and not opening and, and do we ever get back to a normal world? Well, I mean, but it's also yeah. the same thing of recalibration. Yes. You know, like at that, at, I tell people the story all the time, like we want to start in June, but the beginning of that obviously was seven years ago, but really when we dug deep and said that we we're going to make this something different was when the doors were closed for five months and I had nothing to do other than dream of like what it really could be instead of like what it's been because we started with nothing and now we just had a little more than nothing uh, and a baseline of pretty much a clientele and a community of people that supported us. So I had months to figure out like how can we make this better? So it was a recalibration of a lot of things for a lot of people. Some people it was good for, some people it was bad for. You know, I think as people reflect on that time, it's there's a lot that went into it and I think the mental aspect of like how everyone dealt with that is going to it's going to affect them for the next 10 years you know whether good or bad but it was a recalibration for a lot of things business right how you handle your daily life mm -hmm. what you do in your daily life what you enjoy i think people now came out of covid like i like to knit i don't know i didn't knit before and now i spent five months knitting i know no one's making sourdough anymore they did that right. for four months right. but it was a hard recalibration and, and look, le lessons, you know, lessons learned from that. And I remember and I recall you and I having conversations because during the course of that time, in order to launch this team, you know, we were opening that, we're going to open that March. We eventually ended up playing in October of that year one game in a, in a stadium, in a temporary stadium that we ended up building in Fort Lauderdale. But it was always our aspiration to build a stadium here in Miami because this is, should be the home of the team and what's going on. And I remember back then... You know, it was right after we had taken our stadium project here in Miami to the voters and a referendum to be able to build not only a stadium, but a development that generates jobs and becomes a destination and an entertainment district with hotels and retail and great F&B. And we're going to end up hopefully opening something there in a few years. And, you know, with 62% of the voters of the city of Miami, we went forward. That was in November of 18. And when we sat down last time, I was naive enough to think, well, we got the voters to approve it. This will take six months to negotiate a lease, and I'll start building a stadium, and we'll be open by 2021. You know, fast forward has been a four-year process of negotiating something in order to, you know, be able to move forward, which becomes a difficulty of, you know, dealing with city government, dealing with so many different interests. And the one thing that I took out of that is to persevere, right? Because there were so many obstacles put in our way to be able to accomplish something that I think is going to be truly transformational for our community in so many different ways. And it was just persevering and going through it and no matter the obstacles and what happened and dealing with city government and different interests and what you have and all of the uncertainty surrounding that is a life lesson. I think it's been a life lesson for all of us involved that if you can dream it, if you can think of it and you push hard enough, you'll eventually get there. You have to have the luxury of time to do it. You patience. Have to be patience. 
You have to know how to meander around all of these different issues and obstacles that go about. But, you know, but we sit here today. Our team has played for three years. We made the playoffs this year. We ended up losing in New York last week. I think we've been accepted enormously well in our community. Our stadium is a tremendous atmosphere where we play in Fort Lauderdale. In Miami, it's going to be even better. So, listen, I'm very happy with the launch of the team with a million challenges because once COVID hit, all of our plans went out the window mm. in terms of what players did we bring, who did we sign, what did we organize, because the whole soccer economic landscape changed. But, you know, thank God we stuck with it. Um, I think we're in a great place now. I think this is just a very early chapter of Inter-Miami and bringing, and bringing the soccer team here, and I'm super enthusiastic, you know, about, about the future. So just so everyone knows, in front of you is an amuse-bouche. You guys are supposed to eat this. The idea, if people don't know what an amuse is, is to stimulate the palate so you're ready for more food. Um, I'm just going to I'm gonna explain that. Say it again. Are you ready? Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to explain that because I'm going to make Chef Manny explain all the other courses, and he loves doing that, so it's going to be great. Um, question. So, like, after, obviously... Mm-hmm. I think we live in a world that everything is, I think information, whether good or bad, is like always in the, like in your face. After the whole thing with the stadium happens, what was reaction? How did you guys deal with it, good or bad? You know, this is, it, it is a very public process. For sure. You know, it had to do with, you know, the voters and the neighbors and what they want and converting, frankly, a municipally owned city owned golf course to something different. Half of it's going to be a city-owned park. The other half is going to be an entertainment district. And I, and I think the things that our community needs. I think during there was a significant amount of enthusiasm in the early portion to build up. And I think because I spent a lot of time you know, visiting neighbors and talking to people because you want to obviously be inclusive and in trying to deliver something for that community and that district and that neighborhood, which they want in order for it to be successful. I think over a period of time, there was a lot of frustration. It was they sort of look at me and go, why haven't you started? Like, we voted for this. Right. Like, what's up? Right? Not understanding that the processes are really difficult to get there. Oh, yeah. I think it was a long period of frustration. Then there was a period, it was all these things that were going to get done. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, forget it. You guys are going to have to pivot. You have to get done. You're going to stay in Fort Lauderdale. Like, what are you going to do? So, but during all of that, you know, we kept pushing. Again, it was frustrating, but it was frustrating. You know, yeah. it, was, it was frustrating because you met with city officials and city staff and lawyers and everyone that's involved. And it's, it's just frustrating because, you know, when you own private businesses, you just want to, excuse the word, you want to get shit done. Let's just get it done and, like, yeah. move forward and, like, let's get things done. Obviously, in a public process with a public asset that involves a lot of issues, it becomes more difficult. I took the attitude of, look, keep pushing, keep pressing, because what everyone wants you to do is throw in the towel. Yeah. Right, because everybody know this, know that, and throw in the towel and just pivot. But you know, I was brought up to not throw in the towel. I was brought up to you know push and persevere, and just push, right? Push with everything you got, because at the end, I think what you know, it's going to be a true destination. It's at the entrance of the airport. So first thing people will see when they land in the city of Miami, in Miami, sixty-five million people go through Miami International Airport. Last thing you leave. And, and and to build just a stadium by itself doesn't make any sense. I have said this a hundred times, and I've been somewhat criticized by some other sports owners. Stadiums on their own are black holes, that they're not good. 
They're not good economically. They're necessary, but they're not good. They don't add value, in my opinion. But if a stadium is an anchor of a much larger development and destination where you have life, right, 365 days a year, where you can have an office component that are there, hotels proximate to the airport, an entertainment district that people can go with a retail component, great food and beverage, and experiences, because right now you go to business having an experience, be it sports-related or not sports-related, an experiential that you can take your family, you can enjoy yourself. Because, And I remember when we were campaigning for, for the stadium and the referendum in the district. And I had one meeting with an older couple that put it all in perspective for me. And he told me, and it was in Spanish, it was an older Cuban couple, and he told me, he goes, why not us? Three words. And I went, why not you? He goes, well, why can't we have something nice in our community? Right. I don't want to go to Brickle City Center, and I don't want to have to go to, you know, West Aid and the the mall out there. And I want my grandkids to be able to have an opportunity to walk across the street or work there or not in a a good-paying job. So when I heard that, I go, you know what? Everything we're going to do is going to be worth it because sometimes that gets lost, right? What really truly matters to people, you know? Um, And listen, the transformation of Miami over the last five or six years— and, you know, we've we've grown I mean, up here. Even just the last three years. has been crazy. Yeah, and in a, and you know how can we continue driving that? We're a truly global city. You know, Miami has to be the centerpiece of everything that's happening. And in the course of all this time, in the last few years, you know, the United States is going to celebrate the World Cup in 2026. Mm-hmm. So there's a World Cup that's going to start next month in in Qatar, and it's a it's a it's a world event that happens every four years. And I remember when we were making a bid to have Miami as a host city for the 26th World Cup, and I was at the presentation, and I was there, and it was, you know, all the multiple mayors and everyone who was there. And I don't forget, this was at Hard Rock Stadium. And the head of FIFA was there, and a lot of the people who were presenting on our behalf, because I was part of the committee, um, trying to convince FIFA to pick Miami. And we were comparing it and showing, oh, how Miami has the capacity to have Super Bowls and major events, et cetera. The FIFA guy, like, he looked, and I know him very well, but he was—he said it to the whole audience. He goes, guys, a Super Bowl is nothing. So he asked the gentleman making the presentation, how many people watch a Super Bowl? X, tens of millions, 100 million people. He goes, let me give you a number. Take that number, multiply it by 22, and that's the amount of people that look at a little bowl when we roll it and the World Cup draw much less the World Cup. Wow. Right? So he goes, so you guys think these are big events? This event is like 20x of what you guys have ever done. And he was just making a point that this is a truly global stage and a global audience. Fast forward, Miami was picked as a host city. So we're going to host, be a host city for probably seven to nine games of the World Cup in 2026. That's why I think this development of Miami Freedom Park is important because I want it to be a centerpiece of sports and soccer and everything that's great about our community have museums because I think that, you know, I'm at a point or we are at points in our lives where, you know, we've gotten through that, the hustling of the 20s and 30s, and we're at a stage now where it's, at least for me, a lot of the focus is how do we leave a legacy? How do we leave an imprint of the things that we do make an impact, as an example? You know, because I remember that was what my late father was able to do mm. in his life, and, and, and sometimes I reflect, and he died at a very young age, actually younger than what I am now. 
and but I always thought he was an old man. Like you know, so it's like weird. Like like I'm at mm. this age now, or like like and I have a 29 year old son, and it's like this is weird. But it's time about doing that. So you know, there's a lot of lessons learned. You know, I tell a lot of people, man, just persevere, persevere through it. Right, the ups and downs, and if you drive it enough. And you listen, you've had 50 obstacles and challenges in what you've done. Just today. In your life, you know, and just today, right? <laughs> just today. <laughs> but, but, if, but if there's one thing, if there's, if there's one trait that I think that, that separates a people who, who end up doing that is to truly persevere. But what is, but what is perseverance? Because it's really easy to try to define it. And I have a definition for it, and it's believing in yourself. It's faith. You it's have to amount. believe in yourself. It's faith. It's faith in you, it's faith in it's faith in the general sense. But you gotta have faith. And you have to believe in yourself and your ability and what you do and don't doubt. Because if you allow doubt to creep into things that you do, then that creates fear and it creates things that are negative. And that's what you gotta like shy away from. I mean legacy is an interesting word. When you look at obviously you have a very successful business, right? Um, you have been very successful. Do you feel like your legacy is more kind of like attached to where the team goes you know, or where, where that's a you've great, already been? That's a great question because I think about that as well. Yeah, that's a, I like that. So I am, look, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a child of a Cuban exile family. So I'm, a, I'm Cuban at heart. And I, but I was born here. I was born in Mount Sinai Hospital. So I'm, a, I'm a Miami kid. But everything that I do in my life, I do in the aspect to honor my parents. And to honor the generation that had the bravery to leave their homeland and come here to a foreign land with the expectation of going right back, and we're here. And so I do that as a lesson to my kids, to the future, you know, the next generations coming up. So, look, I, I think I've accomplished much in my life. My most biggest accomplishment is my family, and it's my kids, and it's my wife, and I think the circle of friends that I do, and I try to set an example I've had a very successful business, thank God. It's called Mostec, and we're one of the largest 400 companies in the United States of America, we're the largest Hispanic company in, in, in this country. We're involved in energy and infrastructure and telecommunications, and we now have 31,000 employees across the country. And I'm super proud of what we've been able to build because it's a homegrown company from Miami that's been able to grow. I'm super proud of that. So is that my legacy, you know? But then I'm involved in this super high-profile project. And to be honest with you, I'm actually surprised. You know, it's a profile. This is a high-profile issue. You know? Listen, I'm the first Cuban-American owner of a sports team. That's a big deal. I, don't, I love that. I don't say that a lot, but I'm a, that's a big deal. Yeah. Um, and, I, and so I have to honor that. So I do think that what we do with the team is, is part of the legacy. I do. I've had these conversations, frankly, with David Beckham, you know, an amazing soccer player, you know, a, a global figure, super genetically blessed. Um, you know, like like you know, sprigging guy, like the whole deal, like right. So you think of that, and I asked him the same question, and he frankly, if he were here, he'd tell you places enormous importance in bringing a team to Miami and building it and making it for for the same reasons I'm talking about now. So you got the perspective. I was an uber great soccer player, mm. a global figure. Everybody knows who he is, and he places more importance in his team here than in what he's accomplished so so that i do think that if i leave a legacy i think a lot of it is that i like to believe that think a legacy that also has to do with building a great business of never never forgetting my you know my roots of cuba of trying to help cuban people be free 
one day, um, which I've been very engaged in that. So I think it's an all of the above, but there's no question that from a narrative point of view, having a internationally recognized and global soccer team here gives me a different platform to talk about our city, to talk about our aspirations. And, and so, yes, I, I think the team is giving me a very different platform to expand on that legacy. Love that. That's perfect time for timeout. Can I get Chef Manny so he can explain this or no? Come on, salute. No, I don't eat when I'm... No? Arrigo. No? I'm sorry, I've been sitting there. I know. Arrigo, cometelo, coño. like, you need to eat this Yeah, thing. bro. There he is. Give that man the mic. Chef Manny, everyone. All right. First Michelin star to come out of Homestead. Hey, you don't want to give him a microphone? Yeah, the microphone. All right. I love that. All right. Uh, so today's first course, uh, we have a citrus cured snapper with caramelized plantain and a toasted sesame and basil vinaigrette. Beautiful. Thanks, Chef. Thank Appreciate that. Um, oh, yeah. Wine. Yeah, we're going to talk wine. Drink wine. But Nick, is the white coming? Drink this. Drink? Okay. Right. Well, that's very good. The white's coming next. Is it being poured now? Or? Yeah, yeah, it should be coming okay. together with this course, but I figure we might as well. Yeah. Cool. The, the, um, so the white that's coming next uh, is a white burgundy from uh, Merso, which is known for being quite rich and opulent um, by a, a family that's been doing this stuff for a century and a half, Boozero family. Um, and should pair perfectly up with this uh, delicious looking dish. Enjoy. Awesome. Thank you. I think that the um, idea of legacy is interesting, right? Because when you're ambitious, your mm -hmm. ambition will lead you in different directions. You know, business, family, just wanting to start a soccer team in <laughs> pretty much the outliers of Little Havana between the airport. You right. know, I think that. You know, coming from the culture and the community that we come from, the idea of legacy is like very intense, right? Because we are building a new kind of like a new vision of like Cuban, who Cuban Americans are, because people don't really know who we are around Correct. the country and around the world. I mean, Cuba is like this little lost island that's in the middle of the Caribbean that no one talks about because it's a hot button subject and people don't want to like, you know, poke the bear. Correct. Essentially. So... You know, I'm the first Cuban American chef to win a Michelin star, and and I'm and I'm the one who told the Michelin guide that they had right. no idea, which is great. I love that. I don't want to be like yeah, you didn't get the merit because of right of, yes, of, you're I, a Cuban. You didn't kid. give me like the badge because I'm something right. to you guys. You guys had no idea. It's the food on the plate that matters. So the legacy is there. You know, it's just like how we continue to push that conversation and the conversation. Is just beginning, really. It's just really getting started because Miami is this melting pot of a city that has so much and so many things. You know, Cubans are now just one of many different Hispanic cultures that are here and so many other cultures that are here also. So it's like, I don't know, when I when I think about legacy now, when we, when we sat here two and a half years ago, I had, we had one location. Now we have several, right. you know, and like, Every time we open another one, it's like, how are we pushing this conversation in total forward? It's not just, are we opening a business? And obviously the business needs to be fiscally responsible and all that kind of stuff, all the fun business stuff that no one likes to talk about. 
But is the story, the message that we're trying to get across, is it still there? I have a very pointed opinion on this. And I think that our our accomplishments and, and our success need to be recognized for our accomplishments and our success. And we happen to be Cuban-American. Mm-hmm. So the fact that you know, some people try to label minority successes or accomplishments by their nationality is insulting. So, one, I don't think we're victims. Right. Not a freaking victim of anything. Um, so I don't want to play that card ever. I belong. So I tell people a story, a bunch of stories. When I first started going to Wall Street with my brother... We're a little entity that started in Quail Roost Drive in Perrine, Florida. And we go to these meetings in Wall Street, and I'm like in awe, right? These big firms and Goldman Sachs and City, you're there. And I, and I would laugh because, you know, I'd say it's Jorge and Jose Mas coming to a meeting. Not George and Jonah. Jorge and Jose Mas. So I joke that I go, well, these people probably expected us to walk in with a lawnmower and a rake. <laughs> right? So we are on a lawnmower and a rake. Right? We walked in there to talk multi-million dollar deals. And so we belong. As long as we approach life that we belong, you are a one-star Michelin chef. There is absolutely no one who can take that away from you, and you earned it. No one gave it to you. No one gave it to you because of a fucking label. That's it. I'm Cuban-American, but I belong, right? So I think that the challenge many times is, is people like to demean or second oh, you you know, you're Cuban, you're Hispanic, you speak Spanish, you're a Cuban-American. So no, 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 I belong. I do speak Spanish. I'm proud of my language. I speak, and I speak multiple languages. That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. So, you know, the whole, and I know there's a lot of things going on now with this whole social, people trying to revolutionize what society means, but we belong. We belong. Like, we belong. Like, I don't, we don't take a backseat to anyone as good as anyone else. We push the envelope. We push to be excellent, and we should never be bashful about that, right? right? We have one of the largest corporations in the U.S., and we'll continue growing, and we'll continue being successful. It's an accomplishment, yes, but it's an accomplishment because we belong, not just because we're, you know, Juanito from Miami or your restaurant. So I, I you know, that, that whole labeling is I'm super proud of our community and our heritage. We've accomplished a lot. You know, the Cuban-American community, I think what they've done to help build this city to what it is today no one can ever take that away in our history. And there's so many other nationalities that have done the same. There was a Cuban-American initial exodus here in the early 60s that sort of pushed Miami, right? And that allowed Miami to become this melting pot that it is today because we are a cultural mosaic. And that's the beauty of Miami. It's a great city. It's a beautiful city for those reasons. And so, you know, I think we need to continue carrying the torch of where we came from, honor those who were before us and just continue pushing forward history will always write about our contributions and what we've done here because no one can ever take that away from us right wow that was an- i'm pumped i'm yeah. ready to I'm run ready through to a wall <laughs> i'm gonna let george eat his dish nick do you want to actually talk for a bit <laughs> i'm just like no george eat. i have no idea what you're doing okay you, I'm, I'm wanna, he's trying to eat right now yeah yeah no I that's feel fair like if i keep on asking him questions he's gonna stop eating. that's fair well i'm gonna i'm gonna turn the tables on you here okay. I, I i wonder 
you know, I, I think that you've probably had some of your own uh, experiences with people, um, I guess, framing what you, not just what you, but you and Ariette have done in a way that makes it like, oh, it's significant because of this narrow category. And like, that may be true, but I, I wonder whether you have some of that same kind of like gut reaction of like, no, actually what we're doing is significant because it's significant. Right. You know, not just because it's Cubanly significant or, yeah, Mi or I mean, Miamily significant. Cubanly is good. Yeah. That's a good word. Yeah. I don't big, know if that actually exists. Bigly. 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 Yeah. Oh, boy. That's a whole other can of worms. I, I feel like, um, you know, like, uh, I think when it comes to any of our accolades or success, people are just like... You're, you're currently talking into the back of the microphone. Well, I'm trying to talk to you. It's very difficult. Well, talk to them. I think people have more framed it as like, well, yeah, it just makes sense. Area was like, that's what they're supposed to do. Because we took a cuisine, we kind of changed it completely. We made it to what we thought it should be. And then... We created this beautiful thing that uh, no one had seen before, and people were like, "Well, yeah, of course, you know, of course, you want to star." What do you mean, "of course you want to star"? Like that doesn't really work that way. We worked very hard. We changed the conversation behind an entire food culture. It's not just black beans and white rice anymore, and we're going to continue to do that. And I'm very proud of that. There's been a lot of chefs before me that have done similar things. We were just lucky enough to, you know, be at the right place at the right time, right. which is, you know, Miami now has Michelin stars. You know, 20 years ago, they didn't. Um, I think when Douglas was cooking 20 years ago and Norman was cooking mm -hmm. 20 years ago, they probably wouldn't want to star too. So, I don't know. I mean, people frame, you know, people frame things to whatever conversation they're in. It's kind of like when people say, oh, well, you know, Pancom Podcast is obviously the best Miami Cuban-American chef-led podcast in Florida. <laughs> but we're more than that. Yeah, we, we belong. Yeah, I guess so. I guess we, we are. We belong, yeah. damn it. I mean, <laughs> it's nice of you to put it that way. All right. That's enough from Nick for now. By That's the way, good. I, by the way, I like Cubanly. Cubanly. I like that. Cubanly is good. We should put that on Trade, a shirt. Trademark that. That's really good. Cubanly. I'll, I'll let you have that one. Okay, good. That's good. Yeah. Cubanly. I like that. So talk about like, um, we talked about this a little bit before the podcast started, which was obviously you've experienced a solid amount of success in your life. But people always focus on the success and not really on the hardships, mm -hmm. you know, and obviously I, I feel very fortunate that I have friends like yourself and other people that have been through this before and have experienced a lot of things that I maybe am experiencing now or will in the future. And, you know, like growth is difficult, you know, going through, going through uh, growing pains, as people like to simply put it, any kind of growth is difficult, any kind of like as you try to grow to keep your standards, your execution, whatever it is, there's a lot of hardships behind that. And we experience them every day. You know, I wasn't kidding when I said I probably had 50 obstacles from the second I woke up to right now. What were some of the biggest ones in your career that I think you would look at as like, that was a, a point in my life that really made a difference? Um, I, I think points and... And I'll separate and I'll focus more on the on the business side of life, which is part of the the fabric of life. 
but it was trying to learn, listen, and, and we've been through hardships. And this is sometimes, like I, I recall a lot of conversations like I'm having with, with, my, with my son now. Because, you know, we're a, we're a, we're a you know, fortune 300 something. Big company, 12 billion in revenue. It's like we're a very different animal. That's not who we are. You know, we, we started literally on quail roost drive in Prime. We would dig ditches for the phone company and for the electrical company. That's what we did. We dug ditches and we put cable in and that's how we started. With trucks and laborers and I was 14, 15, I'll get in the back of a truck and, and literally dig ditches with a pick and an axe and I learned how to drive a backhoe and a machine so I could get the shade in the summers. There was times in the early 80s when we didn't have enough money to pay payroll. We don't have money. Like it was like, okay, get in your car and you'll get a check from Bell South at the time. Get a check, deposit it in the bank so it can cover payroll, you know, when checks start clearing on Monday. So, you know, those are the challenges of any business, right? right. You know, cash flow, what you get, receivables, good jobs, bad jobs, money. It's, you know, the type of people you could hire. It was, we started from zero, right? We didn't, we didn't inherit anything. We didn't like buy a big business. We started like that. So as we started growing, there was a challenge of growth. So when Hurricane Andrew hit in 1992, and that was, that was a major event in the Moss family's history. So forget the personal issues and toll. If I recall with my, my wife and I were engaged to get married. We were gonna get married, it was August 24th. We were gonna get married the 28th or 28th of August, 29th. Hurricane hit the 24th, I think 22nd, 23rd, 24th, I remember now. We obviously didn't get married that day. And she went to go spend it at her parents' house in uh, Color Ridge. And I lived in Pinecrest. And so the hurricane hits, and I didn't see my wife. For, I couldn't find her for two days because I lost her house. It, like, literally fell on them. Wow. And our offices weren't there anymore. Like, they just weren't there. It was 186th Street and 104th Avenue. We went to the office after we sort of, like, went down there because all, all your points of navigation were, like, gone. And we didn't have like a building. And most of our employees lost their houses. Wow. And so it was like a disaster. So out of the disaster, we started building, right? And got employees, every, all this infrastructure had to be rebuilt, et cetera. So fast forward. So two years after 1992, our business boomed because we were basically rebuilding all of the infrastructure in South Florida. In the course of that, we got the aspirations, look, we can handle anything and we can grow. And we ended up in 1994 buying our largest competitor, which is called Burnup and Sims, a company out of Fort Lauderdale. They had operations all over the U.S. We bought them. We ended up trading on the, on the NASDAQ stock exchange. And then we had to grow the business. We made mistakes growing the business. We had successes, but we made mistakes. So in 1997, we were the first Hispanic company to hit $1 billion in revenue. Wow. Big deal, et cetera. It was amazing. And then we grew 1999, 80, 98, 99, 2000. In 2000, there's a telecom crash. So if you guys recall MCI, all these other companies, they all go out of business. But we're, we did work for them. So we're creditors. So we had to write off half of our receivables. Wow. So at that time, our stock, just to give you a relation, had gotten up to like $60 a share. So in March of 2001, 
Our stock was at $1.31. Wow. Wow. So I have a little sticker on my computer that has a date and says 131. We were basically worth nothing. And I learned a lesson. We are not worth what a number on a screen or a stock is worth. My value is exponentially more than that. It has nothing to do with our stock price, but that was my rallying cry to the troops, right? We're not worth this. Bear down, batten down the hatches. Got it. And so we slowly started getting out of that. We developed a relationship with a little entity out of a suburb in Georgia that had this crazy idea of putting satellite dishes on houses. Stupid idea. That became DirecTV. <laughs> so we were the largest and still our provider of DirecTV. All the DirecTV trucks all over the country, installation systems were all Mastec employees. Wow. Then we started getting into the clean energy business. So bottom line, during the mid-2000s, out of this supposed, you're almost out, you know, you're, you, guys are almost, you guys are almost dead. You guys are on... I mean, how many how many people at that time told you like you should just wrap it up? Well, we had a, a, a we had like a two entities. They told us to bankrupt an entity. I said like, excuse me, like, <laughs> that's not gonna happen, right? So yes, people thought we were done, right? And but this out was, of that, what year two thousand two thousand one one. So out of those ashes, you know, it was hard. It was tough. Bank lines, credits, people. The business went. For, we we're doing a billion, two billion, three. We went. We cut it in half. Yeah, it was like tough. Mm. You learn lessons from that. So your successes and my, my, our successes are a product of learning from our bumps, our obstacles. And, and you, you, aren't, you fail at things, absolutely. But you have to recognize those. You know what you need to do? You need to embrace that. Right. You can't like ignore it. No, 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 embrace it. Where did, what did you do wrong? What didn't you do wrong? Integration of this business, it was wrong. It wasn't growing. What are you doing? And you learn. And basically when the crash, the 2008, 2009 period, where, you know, a lot of my friends' businesses were suffering. We were like, we were, we were like this. So for the last 14 years, we've been like this because we took the lessons we learned. We got into the right businesses. We learned how to execute. You know, we're smart and conservative in what we do. Right? We're not like, we don't gamble, but but we grew and we're in the right place at the right time. So we were one of the first companies to bet on like clean, like on wind power, solar, you know, natural gas. Which, which is a clean energy. It's a clean energy. So we bet big on those, and today we're, the, we're in, in our business. We're the largest of what we do. So have we had struggles? Absolutely. And at those times, you have to, you know, you just your life and your perspective. Your perspective changes. You 100%. Know? At the time in 01, I had a, my Michael had just been born. I had two young kids, you know, their epiphany. You were there. You know, your, your life, you're raising a family, you're doing a business, and you're, it, it's challenging. But again, we put our nose to the ground, bear down, batten down the hatches, and just pushed. So you learn from those lessons. You know, so as you get older, you know, I was like, like, like my wife says, oh, my God, you were, you were so uber-aggressive when you were younger. You're much more like chill now. And I says, look, it's not being chill or uber-aggressive. It's just that this same problem 20 years ago, I would have gone through that wall to get to your kitchen. Now I go, there's a door there. Just open the door and go through it. That is, I think that's a great analogy because that's how you know, like, Well, I mean, I, I find it like it's interesting, right? We, we turned seven, obviously not as long as you guys have been around, but we turned seven in January. And there's been, in the seven years, there's been several times. It's delicious. I'm, yeah. yeah, it was good. Yeah. There's been several times that I'm just kind of like, I don't know if we're going to make it to like next week, but we're just going to, we're going to keep going. We're going to keep going. 
not being able to pay payroll. Well, listen, but, but seven is amazing. But this is like dog years for restaurants because our business is different, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Like, you know, we're, we're not going to business say every career nature. The fact that you've gone seven years, let's look at the example. You named some very renowned chefs earlier. Yeah. Right? The different iterations, what they've done. The fact that you've been steady and been able to do what you do and you're building on your platform without losing, and I'll talk as a customer. Yeah, I love without that. Losing the, without losing the quality and the charm and everything that made this special, because that's your challenge. Now I'm not flipping it. I'm asking, well, I'm not like to flip it on you. Your challenge is, you know, when people try to build, you know, like multi-restaurant models. Right. Uh, do you lose what got you there? Mm-hmm. Do you lose what got you there? And the key is to not do that. And I, you haven't, you're good. Like, right? Like, oh, we're, so be- we're better. You are. We're better this than is, we this were. This is amazing. So you're better. That's the key to success. Yeah. Lesson learned. Right? Which, which peers and other people continue to make mistakes. And that, like I see it with my peers and, and companies I compete with. It's just not I'm older. I've, I've been around five cycles already. And I will call you, he's doing the wrong thing. Like, well, it's, 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 it's perspective. Stay, stay small. Perspective. Perspective. Stay small. Well, Don't when grow. I, when I look back at the last... Generate money. Generate cash flow. Have what you have and then stay small. Stay... When, when I look you. back at the last, you know, seven seven years, there's several times that I'm just kind of like, fuck, man. I this was, this was a very difficult point. Like, I struggled through this, but we pushed through this incredibly hard and we will continue to push through it. Now, seven years in, when I get... Obviously, there's hardships every single day, and they're just like, "Well, why are you so calm?" I'm like, "We've fucking we've been here. I've been there, done that. We've been here. We like the only difference is that you will fail. There is failure every day, but just fail forward. Continue to push yourself to be better today than you were yesterday, and then be smarter than you were yesterday too, because you have to learn from the failure. Like it's okay to fail. Chef Manny, enter Chef Manny. This, by the way, the aroma, this smells. Tamal en cazuela. Sí, pero tú no es un tamal en cazuela like my, my <laughs> no, mom made it. It's oh. different. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, so the next course is our tamal en cazuela with main uni, uh, red pepper sofrito, and then we have a pork fat foam to finish. Thanks, Chef. Thank you. This is actually uh, built off of now completely different from my grandmother's recipe that she gave me. And, I mean, it's very different now, but... The first iteration of this dish was served at family meal. Really? Yeah. Uh, when I worked for Norman, and he was like, he just came to me after family meal. He was like, man, that was really good. I'm like, yeah. It was, I mean, it was my grandmother's recipe. He's like, let's just put it on the menu. So we put it on the menu with just shaved black truffles and truffle jus on top. And it was one of our top sellers for six months. It was a really good dish. Now it's different seafood and interesting and weird, which is more our, more our bag. But Anything with uni is good. Anything with uni is usually yeah. good. Um, how are we all doing? Is there any like very intense questions that need to be asked or no? Only intense yeah. ones. No? Man, you guys are really missing out. Mm. How about if I ask you a question? Ask a question, Nick. So you just, you just mentioned uh, how this dish ended up on a menu at one of Norman's restaurants. Talk about how you handle that. Like how you handle people inside of your company coming up with something, wanting it to be on the menu. What's oh. the process of that? What's very, the... That's a great question. Yeah, it's very... And do you handle it deliberately differently from how 
people that you've worked under handled it? Like, did you learn? What did you learn about what to do, what not to do, what to value, what not to value? So I will say that when I worked for Norman, it was when he was a little longer in the tooth than when he was young. So, you know, when I worked for him, I had the opportunity to put food on his menu often. When I left the restaurant that I worked for him at, um, half the menu were dishes that were mine. Now, what I learned from that experience, the fact that he invited me into a, like more of a collaborative, creative circle was the fact that he invited me into it. After that, I worked for other people that were not so creative and collaborative and more egotistical and they just kind of wanted to be like their own thing. I think that what has made us successful is the fact that people bring ideas, opportunities to the table and they're always heard or executed or just we can try it out. If it's not good, it's not good. If it's great, then it's great and ends up on the menu. I don't, for me, it's not an ego thing. I really just care about great food on a menu. And like in this space specifically, like this one, are you listening? No, you're not. All right, cool. Um, I don't know. You're just, um, this space specifically is the most collaborative space that we have because the talent in this room and in this restaurant is probably more than any other restaurant on the East Coast, I would guess, in my opinion. I know I'm a homer, but yeah, I would say so. And that's, yeah. What? What's happening? You're taking questions at one mic. Oh, oh man. We got, a qu- we, got a, we got a question. I love that. I was just trying to make sure Pete got his food, you know. Oh, eating. Who? Him? You were neighbors? Hold on. No, not real neighbors. You first. So, so, question for for you all, but also for all of us. Jorge beautifully talked about identity. You know, our identity, our pride, our game as Cuban Americans. And then, you know, you have children. Your youngest is 22. Mine's 13. Other than the connectivity and the nostalgia of Cuba than they sh- that we share with them. I- I'm starting to notice that, and I think this is great, and I even feel it myself, that I don't necessarily identify, and I'm not, I don't mean it in any woke way or anything, I don't identify as a Cuban-American. I'm from Miami. Yeah. Is Miami the identity for all of us now? Well... <laughs> Hold on. I I mean, I, so for me, I definitely identify very much as like when they ask me what kind of food we do, I say we do progressive Miami cuisine because no one understands what Cuban food is anyways. When I identify like me as a human, I am Cuban American through and through because once I leave to other places and I enter this other realm of other chefs, like every other chef has a huge platform like to talk about the kind of cuisine that they do. And there's obviously others that are underrepresented like us, but you know, Cuban food is not spoken about at all. So if I can have even just some influence on the fact that someone's gonna like research the history of Cuba at all and see how fucked it is, just by me saying that I'm I'm Cuban American and like th- this food got us a star, then yeah, I'm gonna talk about it, you know? I'm definitely 
I'm definitely from Little Havana, though, for sure. Like, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> Listen, I, you know, and I think our our kids, especially, yeah, you're from Miami, but but that has a connotation, and it has a meaning, and I think it especially has a meaning for the kids whose parents have a background that's not necessarily a United States of America, American background. And it has a different meaning. And I see it from my daughter in London. So she's from Miami. But everyone knows, everyone sees that, you know, she's or Juana or Hifana or there's something there, right? And I've seen her have conversations because whenever she's in London, this is just her, right? Oh my God, you're from Miami, Cuban. Oh, what a nice this. And we went here and there. And my daughter stops him like oh, at yeah. the, I, instantly. No. She goes, A, B, C. She's like drilled, right? A, B, C, D, F, G. Right? She defends what's happening on the island. The fact that going there as a tourist is not good. Like, like all of those things, not taught, felt. And that's the difference. They still feel it. The next generation, that's all going to be a different issue. But in this generation, yeah, you're from Miami. That's fine. I don't, I don't look at that as like a slight Cuban-American, not Cuban-American. No, you're from Miami. But Miami has a connotation, and there's an understanding that Miami is a true melting pot, right? I say many times joking at, at like the owners' meetings of a major league soccer board of governors, nine NFL owners, a whole deal, and I go, we're the capital of Latin America. Yeah, no, I mean, you're not wrong. No, I say that. We're a capital of America. It's percent of Hispanics. Miami speaks Spanish. Like, that's, that's just what it is what it is. Like, yeah. Yeah, it is what it is. Like, there's no denying it. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think I should be a, 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 a proud. I'm, yeah, I said I'm from Miami, too. I'm just like, you know, I'm always from America, but yeah, I'm from Miami. Yeah. yeah. I know Diego had something. So, we, we, we you guys have spoken about a lot of good stuff that which is amazing right and and i think that a lot of what Maz has spoken about is two sides right he, he's spoken about his business which is you know the ground of what you've done and then also about your soccer project which mm -hmm. has been i think what you said it exposed me to a whole new world that i i couldn't believe what what i did right that that flash of that right like we've done so much in the business world but the variety of doing the soccer is 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 impactful and and uh I will tell you, I am a Colombian kid, right? Raised in a Cuban community, right? I'm a Westchester kid, raised in a Cuban community, and I consider myself to be a Colombian Cuban, right? Because okay. you can't, right? How, how can, how can welcome, you? Welcome. How, how can you? Wechete, for life, right? So it's it's you can't escape it. When we saw that you got behind the project of the soccer, what I told my friends like, this is somebody that's going to make this reality for us because you know my wife's cuban right uh for us south americans and central americans that's a reality that we've wanted yeah. for a very long time right because it's very near and dear you said i didn't know the sport you said i didn't know the sport mm -hmm. right but for us it's near and dear and we're like this is somebody that's going to bring a certification that's going to make things like a reality and what you guys have done the challenges the perseverance has been for a big community in Miami because this has been a Cuban community, but slowly but surely it's becoming a, I think, South American community, yes, like I a agree. very big central South, right? Now yes, we're yes. global. Like you said, we're, we are the hub for central South 
America at this point when it comes to e-commerce, any commerce that you can think about at this point, right? We thank you for for what you backing what we do, right? It's a big push. Um, we've we 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 we've always thought we needed somebody to you know bring that backing behind it, and the fact that you had the vision to see, and I believe it's going to be world class no matter what happens, right? World Cup, MLS, whatever we do, we, you know, we thank you so much for for that. that that's one hundred percent. Thank you. And chef, amazing. I, me and my wife come here all the time. We always say. Nobody serves a better dish than Adia. It just, it just, just the, the food here is always amazing, man. You guys are absolutely what you do every day. It's top shelf, bar none. Two stars on my book. Three, five. If I could give it. <laughs> two stars. Two stars should have been a thing, but I'll tell you, I appreciate that. Um, listen, thank you for that. And that, by the way, that that's what inspires and drives us every day, because it's important to be driven by something that inspires you that you have an aspiration for, and I see it during our games. To see for 90-plus minutes, our supporter section, standing room only, 35-degree rate, singing, smoke bombs, flags, every nationality, kids, moms, dads, abuela, abuela, up there like going crazy is an atmosphere that you do not see in, in typical American sports. You do not see that. And that's amazing. So... The reason that I was first pushed into this is my first experience with football soccer. I was 13 years old, and I went to my first match at the Santiago Bernabeu in Madrid with a very dear friend of mine. And I thought it was the coolest experience on earth because the first time I was able to drink wine out of a bota. You know, a, a, a bota, a, you know, a bota, a pouch. It's pretty amazing. But it wasn't that. It was, it was a whole day affair. So it was like, oh my God, like I've been to, I've been to the Orange Bowl, I've been to a million events. I go, wow, this is like, this is crazy good. And that's, that's hooked me on the experience. And that's what we want to translate here, right? And, and then I had an, an event 13, 14 years ago, late 2000s. I was in Buenos Aires and I went to a River Boca match at La Bombonera. That's crazy, that's crazy. Bro. That's crazy. <laughs> that's crazy. That's yeah, it's nuts. That was it. I go, wow, yeah. Bro, like, I don't know what this is, but I need chaos. to go. No, it's a stadium. I won't it up. The rivalry. Hey, bro, it's, uh, you can't equate it to anything. It's not Yankees, Mets. It's, it's, it's to the point where the fans have to exit separately. The home team stays behind, and then the way they use, yeah. The other team exit first. That's how bad it is. I love that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love that. No, it's it's. Uh, and I went. I went. Wow, this is like a made brava, brava, the chant. Because most of our supporters groups are they're fans of either Racing or others. It's a very Argentinian, Uruguayan like our chants and what they sing and they do. It's yeah, it's 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 amazing. And our supporters travel. So New York, we had like seven hundred. So our playoff came, but the most we had is we went to Orlando and we had we had like fifteen hundred of our supporters in Orlando. They were louder than than the home. But then it, you know it's got a little nasty and wasn't good. And but it was. I mean, you know, I mean, sports do get they get like that. Yeah, it's a it's a great culture. It's a it's a cultural issue. It's really good, really good. What was your question? You had a question. Well, I was gonna first. I should ask when is Messi coming, but that just. 
you know. <laughs> I, I Argentino, get a lot, Argentino. So, yeah. no, just kidding. I was just wondering when, how you guys met. Um, so, I, I actually, you mentioned the neighborhood thing, but I don't, I don't. I mean, he was my neighbor, but across the street from the restaurant, not right. from like actually where I live. Um, it was like a slow Sunday, mm-hmm. and I was I was working the line slash expo. This is back when we didn't have a ton of employees, and he 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 came up to me and introduced himself, and I'm like, I I, I yeah. definitely know who you are. Like I yeah. I'm not I'm not I'm not oblivious. I intru- I, I was yeah I went to him. Yeah, and this is back. So I when, thought he was like awesome, and equally, and I um this is back when we had the the half wood grilled chicken on the menu, yes. which your wife is My a huge fan favorite, of. Yes. She's still mad that we took it off the menu, <laughs> and um since then we've been you know pretty tight. I know that I can always call him and he'll pick up the phone, which is mm-hmm. incredible to have a friend like that with. Just like the knowledge and wisdom that this man has, that I could be like, I like life sucks right now. What do you think? Can, can you tell me what you think? Because I just think that it all sucks. And I'd be like, you know, you need to relax. And I'm like, all right, that's cool. But that's really how how we met. And I think that was four years ago. And what and what I tried to remember because I knew of him before I actually met him or came here. And was the fact was the stories with his grandmother, the recipes. I was attracted to because he was taking our culture and taking it to a level and a platform that I had never been at before. And so I admired him and I wanted to, you know, I had a trip, you know, I came here like, like, you know, thank him. Like, wait, this is, what you're doing is amazing. It's really good. And we hit it off. My wife liked a freaking chicken with chimichurri. They know salsa verde. You did. Salsa verde. Not chimichurri. Salsa verde. Chimichurri is otra cosa. Salsa parrillada. It's, um, yeah, it was amazing. And when you took, I, it, out, and when you took co- it out the menu, she got like pissed. She was. But she mad. told you. Yeah, I know she did tell me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then and then I cooked uh Nocho at my house. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I cooked Nocho at his house. I mean, no, the year great. of COVID when all my family was here. COVID. Yeah. Was it the year of COVID? It was. Oh uh, yeah, it was yeah, the year of COVID. Was, that's yeah, right. The, the end of twenty, right? Yeah, the yeah. end of twenty. That's yeah. correct. Yeah, it's been like a quite a quite a journey. Yeah, because we Nocho Buenas, like all masses, we all get together, but we were worried about my mom. Older, and then everybody's with moms, and we're not gonna get together. So it was like, coño, like, this is the first time the family's not gonna get together. So I screwed that. Come, he said, Un lechon asado in my house was amazing. It was good, it was way too much food for just like eight people, though. Yeah, because it was was like us, okay, like you six. It was like it was way too much food, it was, but that I'm good for that. So I guess, but if you ask my wife and my kids, it was like one of the best noche buenas ever. I love that, yeah, really, yeah, it was. Oh, I love to hear that. Um. I guess really the the question now is like what's next, right? Stadium is gonna happen. I'm yeah, sure what's, everyone what's, asks you but, this shit all the time. But what's next? Look, stadium's gonna happen. It's gonna take you know again it's I always tell people this is the hard part now, actually like building it, but we'll get it done, it'll happen. I am super excited about our team next year because we're not the only ones that believe in Miami. Miami's a great city. I think we're going to attract amazing players here. So I think the, the eyes of the soccer world will be here next year. I love how pumped you are about this. So it's, yeah, it's going to be really like, it's going to be amazing. Because like, you know, like business is business, right? But then when you find like a passion project. Yeah, no, business now is like, like my sex phenomenal, great, but I'll let my brother run that. It's okay. <laughs> like, he's super talented. He's amazing. 
I've been doing that for uh, I know, left college. Like, okay, yeah, like this is this is this is fun. I'm yeah. having a blast. I love that. It's it's very challenging. It's hard. I hate losing. I'm super competitive. Same. I can't be talked to like during a game. Like this game last Monday was a city field. It's friggin' raining. It's cold. It's Gonzalo Wayne's last game. He had an amazing run. We're playing on a baseball field. Great, you know, good 30 minutes. We're there. I thought, you know, it was offsides and I go. We go up on nothing. I could tell we're going to start getting shredded in the midfield. I am super pissed off. Great. But there is a flip side to my New York story of losing last Monday night. So knowing it's a challenging game, so it's myself, Aleda, my kids, and David Beckham and his son Cruz. So what I made sure was when we're in New York that we had great food. Okay. So we had lunch at Le Bernardin. Oh, man, I've had lunch there. Amazing. Yeah, it's great. Right? With Eric Rupert, et cetera, great seafood and great wine pairings by a sommelier. Aldo Sam was great. We go to the game. It's bad. So I see David on his phone. Boss, like, we're going to forget this. We're going to eat on the plane. So, you know, this is all bad, et cetera. So at our plane shows up, the owner of Bucali. Oh, nice. With four pizzas, calzones, meatballs. Yeah. And friggin' dessert thing. So on our pl- on the way back, we like got stuffed with food. I mean, that's so a good it way started to forget, eating right? and it finished eating. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good. Right, that's there a we good, go. That's a good way to forget. Yes. I just actually went to New York too, and I had some really great food. Yeah, I mean, I, we. I think I, what's happening in New York is like I. You know, I think New York's really different than I was used to seeing. But what does that mean? It's great food. Tell me what that it means. It means that that. I always looked at New York as the beacon and financial center of the world, had a different buzz, super fan of New York. When my daughter was living there for two years, it was amazing. So when I went back a year ago, it was a different city. It wasn't a New York that I knew. It was dirty. It was, you don't want to walk the sidewalks. My daughter's in an apartment in Gramercy Park. I wouldn't let her live there. The restaurants for half of them were shut down. This is a year ago. When I've been back, because I've been back, it's getting better, but it's still not the New York that we know. And my friends that live there with the crime and everything that's happening, a lot of them are moving here. New York will be back. New York will bounce back. New York's going to be amazing, but it's going through a tough period now. I mean, I think, like, after what the world just lived through, you know. I think New York's amazing. Yeah, but it's also like everyone has had a different trajectory Afterwards, yes. Obviously, Florida was on a different path. We're different. Yeah. Then we are definitely different uh, than the rest of the country, and we are, I think, in a place right now that we can we can capture a lot more than the rest of the country. Can. But it's but it's hard when you go there, living how we do here, and going there and seeing the contrast is hard. Like I went to Major League Soccer's offices in New York. They're there. I always go. Twenty percent of their employees in the office. Twenty, maybe. Right weird like at Masa we don't have 100% employees we don't we got 80 right I need 80 you know it's for me it was just a contrast all it was was a contrast I'm not good bad or indifferent well, I was just I mean, every time I go somewhere it's always a contrast you know like but, I've, I've but, been but it's a marked contrast to I always looked me when I grew up New York was like oh my god like this is like it's like the center of the world like, right this is the center of the world I mean, but wouldn't you say that a lot of people nowadays say that Miami is the center of the world? Yes, they all want to be here. They all want to be here. San Francisco, Miami, and New York, they want to be here. But 
but then my my daughter's living in London mm-hmm. now. I was in London like ten years ago. Yeah, London, <laughs> London, no, London, London. Now is like is like like wow. Oh, is and it? I contrast with New York. Yes, yes, yes. Like London now, what they're doing with forget English cuisine. I'm talking about London, the food scene with yeah, different the food cuisine. Scene is the food scene is super intense now. It's a super different city. For whatever reasons, people have migrated post-COVID to places that they feel they can, I don't know, like like maybe move easier and there's less restrictions or not. Whatever it is, it's a combination. It's about feeling safe. It's about having a friendly business environment. It's about not being shut down. It's about so many things. It's Look, when COVID hit, my first thought in Mostec, at that time, we had 20,000 20, employees. I go to my brother, I go, bro, this is going to be bad. Like 20,000 people. If you recall, construction became an essential service. Right, it was an essential service. It was an exempt service. Right. We laid off barely no one. Our, our employees that couldn't work only couldn't work because of government mandates and areas they were that kept certain people working, all those essential services. But thank God, frankly, during COVID, we grew. Yeah. Thank God, right? But I've been to some of those cities, and and, and again, I don't want to get into like, brother, I will, if you want to, politics, I'll talk, because I, I have no filter in my mouth. Um, I go to some of these cities, I go, these people are retarded. Like, what's going on here? Like, I mean, this is ridiculous. What, what, what is the, the real, like, let's talk about this. So why is Miami what it is today? And what is Miami going to be over the next 10 years because of what's happened over the last three years? I think Miami has finally be- become recognized for what it always was. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think I don't think Miami is different. I think they're finally recognizing, oh, my God, I live here. And you go there and you go, I like this for a lot of reasons. Right. So people are recognizing they're all coming here now. And what? they're recognizing that everything that Miami stood for, our multi-diversity, multi-language, cultural mosaic, and the geography, the water, et cetera. But, but it's all the way we live, right? Like, it's, it's what we do, and, and people are recognizing that. We're finally becoming a magnet for everywhere else, because frankly, New Yorkers, people from California, oh, Miami, that's a little, it's a little bush town, we'll go vacation on the beach, it's you know, a bunch of spicks on there. Now they like, all move here. Like, yeah, like, now they all move here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it's not I, stopping. I said the same thing about food, right? It's like when we won stars in June, I was like, we could have won these stars a decade ago. Not me because we weren't open a decade ago, but I also think, um, I also think that it this was just a validating moment in the food world that we have deserved for a long time, and I think that's going to continue to happen with several different industries and as we continue to go and obviously i'm a big fucking homer because this is my home nick is waving the mic at me you're wait okay. oh i was uh i had already waved you i was waving at uh, at carlo but let him know i was turning the mic on ivan has things to say i okay <laughs> all right ivan. i don't know what's going on either i'm as yeah, lost as you are it's perfect i think that was a very profound was it cut off maybe you should finish what you're saying no i don't first. even remember what it's i said yeah you said a very so, so the, the the comments that you're you're sharing are 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 i agree with and are a little triggering in the sense that like you're in a room full of miamians telling right. how how wonderful miami is and like we all agree it's 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 we already know it's wonderful here i'm curious what each of you think miami's missing 
like what do we what do we really need or wh- what do we crave i mean you have incredible amount i'll also answer that incredible amount of capital that. coming to south florida you have an incredible migration of people coming to south florida for a variety of reasons during the pandemic but um what what are we missing as a city in order for us to be um even better and to to set the stage beyond new york beyond london um and to really be kind of a a, a uniquely special place i think go ahead. I think it's a two-part two-part answer but you okay. go i think that we're i, I think that we're going to face challenges with the expectations of people moving here what they're accustomed to from a global city which has to do with education so i think all of my friends that are in this whole different financial world moving down here having issues with schools and I think I'm just out of the school age but I have nieces and nephews there's issues with schools schools are super important but I think there's going to be enough capital invested here to build the infrastructure of schools in order to be educate our children in the best way possible in a better way than we did doing that but that's a challenge it's a challenge it has to be executed so I think one is education two is the infrastructure here going to be in the handle we're in, we're in the infrastructure business and we're in the business of moving people to get to work. We need to make sure that the gridlock in our infrastructure is such that you don't take one hour to get to two hours getting to work. We can't become New York with traffic or San Francisco. I think that's a challenge. Then I think there's other activities where you have these big capital dollars coming in, be it restaurant, cultural, etc. I think those aren't challenges. I think those are opportunities. I personally think that our challenges are education and transportation infrastructure. That's my my opinion. That's a very wise way to look at this. (laughs) (laughs) I think that um, our challenges through growth are a little more personal for me because I think people as more stuff, like let's not even talk about like very grown up things like education, mm-hmm. right? For kids. Let's just talk about like on, on what everyone sees, which is the glitz and the glamour and the F and B and all that stuff. I think us as Miamians, right? It takes us to make a difference because we need to take a step back and appreciate the things that made us special to begin with. Like the things that make Miami great from day one, which are whether you want to talk about whatever food place you ate at when you were 10 or whatever, you know, if you went to AC's Icy's when you were a kid and all those kinds of things, like we need to take a step back and continue to appreciate those things in order to keep Miami what Miami really is. And I think as we continue to grow, it's going to be the job of so many people that are the shot callers and the people that sign all kinds of things into legislation and uh, like actual like rules and what allows people and things to open here. But it's also our job to continue to make Miami special in what we appreciate. Because if you just listen to the media of Miami, everything is what is today. We need to remember what was yesterday so we can appreciate what makes this city fucking special. Because if not, we're fucked. Right. Like we're incredibly screwed because we are just going to be what San Fran has been for the last 20 years. Right. Which that's, is that's like a, that's a wicked balancing act. Right. Like you, yeah. you have a whole uh, culture around the future. Right. Like around um, 
blockchain around Web3, around building a, a tech-based tech city, around an evolution in sports, and things like that. And then you have us that grew up going to the Nathanita, right? Like, and like, like that culture almost is, is second fiddle to this evolution. Right? Like, how do you how do you preserve it? Like, how do you make sure that as the city evolves, you keep that culture, you preserve the importance of uh, uh, things that we grew up with uh, uh, that are that are memorable. You know, it, it, in my head, I think of places like Scotty's Landing, a different place, right? Like, I love that place. Like it's, a, it's a different spot, but that's a place I grew up going with my father and like having burgers. Growing up in so those places are, are no more like that is that has evolved as, as any city would but I think what you're what you're stating is really important preserving the culture I just right. wonder how we do that over the course of time I mean people and not faking the funk like I mean with every day people will talk about like the new carbones of the world instead of talking about our betters you know like I, I, they, there's absolutely nothing wrong with our betters and people will continue to do that if we let them and I think that you know part of my mission as a human has been to try to preserve what makes Miami special as much as I can and the culture of Miami as much as I can because it will be forgotten people are in today's world everyone wants to just know what's happening today they don't want to remember all the history that's been here. So it really takes several of the people in this room and other people also, which is just to remind the world that like there are several things that make us fucking great. So it is a very interesting balancing act, right? Because we are in this incredible moment of growth and everyone's like, let's take all the dollars that we can. And that's cool. But let's also put the dollars that we can into the things that matter that made us this way that we are. So anyway, Chef Manny, the, the floor is yours, sir. All right, yes. Uh, so the entree tonight is uh, huh? oh, called Noche Buena. So... <laughs> this is ridiculous. <laughs> so these are all flavors that uh, we grew up eating, right? So uh, you have your porcelain belly uh, that's been stuffed with a sausage and a maduro. Then we have uh, Curtis Avocado with... <laughs> Curtis is our dishwasher. He has a fart. He has an avocado tree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it is uh, Curtis Avocado. Uh, we have sour orange gel and then a colotura mojo. Love that. Thank you. This is really good. That's all right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just while you're what are you while you're eating? This is probably what the eighth iteration of this dish that we've had. We have tried to recreate the flavors and the feelings of Noche Buena so many times and this failed. This is amazing. I feel like we've failed so many times, but you know, every time we do it, we get better. Noche Buena is a feeling, it is a culture, it is a moment, it is a thing that uh, I think only people in Miami can understand that is incredibly special. And trying to recreate that in a dish and in a moment is has been a challenge of ours as a restaurant for a long time. So. As a non-Miamian, can you get, like, give me a bit of a background on Noche Buena? Yes, please. Well, I mean, Noche Buena, for me, in, in my family, it's like the one day that we get together every year, right? And my I came oh, from... The night before Christmas. Yeah, the night, the night before Christmas. Okay. So um, I come from a family of my grandparents are the cooks. You know, my, my grandfather is mm -hmm. the cook of the family. 
And pretty much it was the lead up to this is why this is the only holiday that I really enjoy, which is like the lead up to Christmas Eve was so intense. You know, we would, he would have a whole hog just sitting in a fridge like you would open the fridge to get something and there's just a whole pig sitting in there. And it was like the days of like blanching yuca and making congri and making frijoles and the whole thing, like the lead up to it. And then that moment when you eat for Christmas Eve. Nochebuena for us, like my grandfather would sit there and there'd be 30 people eating mm -hmm. and he would wait and he would see everybody eat. And then once he sees everyone eat, then he would sit down and he would eat. And it was like a moment that it's like, it's so hard to recreate the understanding and the feeling of that moment to try to like put that down into one dish. We've tried so many different fucking things and it's, it's always delicious and it's always exceptional, but it's like, can you recreate the feeling? is the hardest part so and there's the build up so you'll never recreate the build up no I mean you know the no, build up is the hardest this part. is really good amazing and on that I'm going on a bathroom yeah, break this is <laughs> question for chef yeah shoot Second, second fiddle to the uh, to the great food of the, of the wines that we've got. So, both are from Bordeaux, and we've uh, we've moved over to the to the left bank of uh, to, sorry to the right bank of Bordeaux. Predominantly, uh, there's two areas: Pomerol and Saint-Emilion. The left glass, we've got Saint-Emilion. And the right glass, we've got Pomerol. We've got two estates that are just mm -hmm. knocking it out of the park. Sensational. And we've got them from two of their best vintages in recent memory. Um, so on the left, you've got Fijak. Fijak is run by a guy with such an incredible attention to detail, Freddie Fay, who's just doing um, immense stuff at the property. Last year, completely redid everything. It's, it's immaculate. And his wines over the last decade have just soared. Um, super fresh, accessible early, but you can just park it away for 20, 30 years. Fijak is right at the top of their game and was just recognized as Premier Grand Cru, Cru Classe. And, and actually, the, the sort of anomaly there for, for Fijak is that in Saint-Emilion, you would usually expect Merlot, but it's, uh, it's got a lot of Cabernet Sauvignon in there, which gives it a sort of bit more backbone. So it's a bit more structured than you'd usually get from a, from a Saint-Emilion. And, uh, and Conscient is from Pomerol. Pomerol is basically a hodgepodge of little, uh, little properties, uh, mostly on clay, mostly Merlot. Conscient's a bit different in that they have a bit of a patchwork and it, it borrows a bit of land in Saint-Emilion as well, uh, limestone, um, super fresh, very well known for being really silky. Uh, 2009 was a vintage that was just massive in every way. So massive on fruit, alcohol, tannins, acidity, but somehow they pulled it all together and you get a balance. Uh, it's like a turbocharged wine. And 2010, a little bit more structured, uh, a wine that you can uh, tuck away for a very long time, quite correct. Uh, nice to see alternative years side by side and a bit of a comparison. Uh, and they both have, offer enough seriousness to be able to sort of handle that great food. Thank you. Love that. 
So I think we should just like touch on the elephant in the room, right? Mm -hmm. Which is uh, the state that kind of Cuba is in at this moment. Mm -hmm. Um, I think where we're all at is, I think the world in general is at a place that they don't quite understand what's happening. I know that we here in Miami understand what's happening, but for the 22 people outside of Miami that listen to this podcast, um, it's really only 22. So uh, in total, yeah. I think it's important to note that like we are at a very interesting kind of like crossroads, right? And, you know, me knowing you and knowing um, your background and stuff, I think you could speak on that a little bit better than a lot of people can. Look, I think I think the situation in, in Cuba, and again, it's hard to explain, but it's tragic. It's um, I've got all the all the emotions out. It's frustrating. It's like all the gamut of emotions that go into things that make no sense, that don't take any type of historical sensibility. Because how can you have a nation that's been enslaved since 1959, 60-plus years now, when you had two waves of Cold War, the fall of communism in the Eastern Bloc, you've had all of those things, and Cuba remains this, you know, this, this monstrous dictatorship that took all of the best repressive tactics from the old Soviet Union and applied it on its people. When you look at rafts being found by the dozens every day now as we speak, you see the border full of Cubans fleeing the island. You see the desire of a people wanting to be free via protests on the street. Yes, it's this incessant, repressive machinery controlled still by the Castro family and his acolytes. You know, what's the solution? Because Cuba's an island. And it's easy to lose hope. It's easy to ignore, right? Like most of the world has ignored and will continue to ignore Cuba. Right. Because it's not on anybody's list. I have always said that the only time Cuba's situation will get resolved by an outside force outside of Cuba or when the interest of a free Cuban people align with that country's interest. Right. It hasn't happened yet. So so what do we do? Like right, like that that's the ultimate question. And we can support humanitarian bases, we can support the opposition in Cuba with support, and we can do all that, but what really moves the needle? And I've been doing this for a long time. And it's I don't think there's any magic bullet. I think it takes faith. I think if you look at the models of countries that have gone from a totalitarian system to a free society in a short period of time there's been shocks in their systems that weren't anticipated um, are we in that shock moment I don't know uh, I don't know um, frankly I hate to say this I'm a super optimistic person but I am not I'm not super optimistic because I think it's going to take something much more severe to rattle the powers that be in Cuba from repressing the people at the end of the day and you've heard me say this before the solution of Cuba lies in the hands of Cubans. Yeah. It does not lie in the hands of the United States of America or foreign powers or Venezuelans or Russians, etc. It lies in the hands of Cuban people. 
when the Cuban people decide to truly be free and take any means necessary to do that, you'll see movement. Can I rely on the, the United States? Is not going to free Cuba. There's not going to be an invasion in Cuba to free the people. That's not, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So it's 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 we're in a frustrating situation. I think what we all can do is just continue showing the world what what a free Cuba can represent, what the Cuban people aspire for, which is freedom. I think there's been a tremendous shift over the last two twenty years, and from Cuba being this supposed revolutionary socialist example to truly being a pariah. I think it's very difficult now where you see people saying Cuba is a good example of anything, where you had the extreme left and socialism for a long time use Cuba as this example. I don't think that exists anymore, but but it, but it's frustrating. Do you feel like in the last two years there's there's been more of a push or no? I think so because you start seeing exhibits of opposition publicly that you didn't see before. Right, from the people. From the people. I mean, that's it's evident. Right. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, I mean, and and it could have been, you know, I mean, we only see what they want us to see, right? Yes. You know, and then once that once we're seeing what they don't want us to see, then they cut us off from all vision. Like you can't see that what is going. You, you can't. They can't take back or, or control back what's happened. I think there's amazing momentum. I think it's. I think everything that's happened is a good thing. But I think for decades we all believed that what mattered to the Cuban people was the. Only the political speech, right? Freedom, democracy, those values that we all hold dear. Put that aside. What the Cuban people truly want is, is, is to be able to socially survive and be able to provide something for kids and put food on the table and do those things. Because when you've been taken away, when you've been basically you've given nothing and you depend totally on the state, it's a bad thing, you become subservient to the state. And as you see people now go beyond that barrier, right, that barrier, of the Comité de Defensa Revolución, the, the people on the block who spy on you, what you want. And you're going on the streets and you're repelling the police, right, of arresting someone who's doing something peacefully. And those, those are all great signs. So is there a movement? Absolutely. But again, you get, people get, you know, we get impatient. We want to like yesterday, yesterday, right, yesterday, right, yesterday, right. yesterday. Right. I mean, I see you over there with something to say. No, no, no I would just, you know, we gotta, we gotta, we're on a weirdly timed uh, situation for our for our podcast, are we? So yeah, you know, we gotta get upstairs at a certain point. Okay, <laughs> all right. And we you know, we're gonna do Q and A things. Oh, we're gonna do Q and A things. Yeah. Is it time for the Q and A things? I think it's it's about time for the Q and A things. Uh, I I want to transition into them uh, by having a, a thanking people and also having a few people uh, uh, address the. Oh, we're gonna talk. People here. are gonna talk. Yeah, so Got we'll it. transition into the people talking. With uh, some some thanks, I want to thank uh, Jorge for agreeing to uh, to do this thing that is like way beneath his station. This is beneath all of you to be doing this. We're underground. I'd have to no, agree. We really actually, are. you really all have like lowered yourself under area to do this thing. Uh, so thanks, thanks for that. Thanks to Mike for putting up with this light that I put up in the rafters. I know uh, it's been his favorite part of the day. I know. Uh, Mike is not a fan of lights, and I put one right in his face. Um, thanks to the sponsors of this dinner. That's the people that you see in those frames over there. Uh, Aquapana Pellegrino. We've got uh, Covassier. Uh, we've got Bordeaux Index, which, of course, we've been hearing from from Doug. Doug, thank you for uh, uh, guiding us thank through 
through so much of the booze here and D'Artagnan Foods, which um, which also sponsored the thing. Unfortunately, there's nobody personally here for us to to thank. But it's you know, cool. I buy enough of their they stuff. They pitched in. Well, <laughs> you know, fine. It's fine. that's why you're not selling the ads oh. around here. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, so thanks to to all the sponsors. Uh, also, going back to Cavassier, we've got Joanna and Eddie here, and I know that we were going to, uh, I don't know if you want to do it from your seat or if you want to come up here, uh, we wanted to talk about Oh, get on up, come on, I want yeah, to, let's go. Yeah. You wore a jacket and everything yeah. for this, come yeah. on. You wore a jacket, no, no, nice kicks, no, no, come no, on. Oh, yeah, the pocket square. Joanna's I, I like, was no. going to say the same, tremenda pinta. <laughs> yeah. 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 Tremenda okay, pinta. Okay, okay, that's fine. That's a lot. Of, that's a lot of pinta to be saying sitting down, you know. Yeah. Hi. Um, first of all, thanks to Nick and um, Mike for having us this evening. Um, I'm Joanna Pena, as he mentioned to you. I work with Beam Centauri. Um, I run the East Coast for Multicultural Marketing. I think we touched on a lot of things this evening, which um, brought a lot of joy because it's what I do for a living. I I, I put our culture in the brand's hands, like brands that historically would never have speak, like spoken to a Hispanic consumer. Um, I, I create programming to, you know, bring our brands to other audiences and make everybody feel included, right, in this room. Um, I'm also a Miami-born uh, girl from Cuban-American parents. Um, so I'm second generation uh, Cuban-American. My grandfather was a brigadista. He went to jail for two years. Um, and he lived his whole life working out of the Cuban Museum in Little Havana, um, the Brigadita 2506, right? Um, he was the treasurer until he died um, a few years ago. And I'm not here to talk about myself or what I do for a living, but I'm here actually to talk to you about something that was born five years ago because one of the topics that we kind of touched on earlier was legacy. And I think what is my legacy in life, right? And I think one of the things that I learned from being a, a product of immigrant families and coming to America and wanting to you know, create the American dream and leave something behind is helping those along the way that identify the same you know, historically as us and have gone through some of the same struggles that we have. One of the things that really shaped my life growing up was hurricanes. I lived in Puerto Rico in 1989 when I was five and Hurricane Hugo basically wiped out my family's business. We relocated to Miami again. Um, Hurricane Andrew came and did the same thing again. Relocated me to Central Florida. So um, five years ago, we found ourselves after Hurricane Maria hit the island of Puerto Rico and wiped out the island and where, where my family relocated to after basically they left Cuba. So um, what happened that day was something super unique. I think that in this industry, in the hospitality industry, um, there's something that brings us all together and it's like when one of our brothers or sisters needs something, we call each other up and we say, how can we help, right? Um, in that moment, I spoke to a lot of industry peers and I said, hey, Puerto Rico needs us. Who's willing to step in and put their hand up and do something about it, right? Um, back then, five years ago, uh, Eddie Fuentes was one of the first people I called and who put his hand up. He's a Cuban-American, not Puerto Rican, doesn't have any ties to the island. Michael Beltran, another Cuban-American chef, said, what do you need? I'm there to cook. Um, and we threw a great event and raised money for Puerto Rico. Um, and it kind of was what born Shaking Four. It's a group of 
um, like-minded individuals, whether we're hospitality industry or other brands in the room tonight, um, could be a part of it. It's a lot of um, just like people that want to do good for those that are finding themselves in tragedy and are a desperate crisis, right? Um, and you know, recently we've been kind of going through the same thing again. You know, we had Hurricane Fiona once again wipe out Puerto Rico and Dominican Republic. Then Ian came, wiped out Cuba. Um, wiped out Central Florida, and uh, three weeks ago we held another amazing event. Um, the industry came together, lots of brands, lots of people donated their time. We're not a nonprofit. I just want to make that very clear. We are literally a collective of people that believe in helping others in the best way possible with whatever resources we have, right? Um, Chef Mike, once again, thank you for being there that night as well, three weeks ago, to help cook. Um, but we just wanted to make you guys aware of what shaking for is and invite you all if there's any way that you want to be a part of this help people i think you know we just finished raising seventy thousand dollars at the event three weeks ago which is going directly to the people in puerto rico and dominican republic but the people who really need us right now are cuba and central florida who happen to be what make up miami and florida as a whole and this is our local community of people that could really um use you know your whether it's donations for your brands to be part of our next event or whatnot if you want to be a volunteer resources help out in any way possible um this i'll pass it off to Eddie. oh that was great that was a hard <laughs> way to follow that up all right uh, that's a hard follow yeah yeah that's that a hard really follow. hard follow i'm not gonna get there but anyway my name is eddie fuentes uh i own uh two restaurants in wingwood called spanglish and grails um but uh, again i don't I don't want to spend even a second more time about myself. It's it's really about shaking four. And again, uh, five years ago, as uh, Joanna said, uh, piggyback off of that, I was literally like just watching it on the news. One of my business partners, uh, Hector Acevedo, uh, which I think you you know through through uh, Miami Inter and uh, nothing. He was um, in in Italy, uh, kind of really enjoying you know a cocktail competition win or whatever. And then this happened, and I was just like, I just literally called him and said, hey. What are we gonna do? You know what I mean? Like the whole island, you know, again doesn't have power, again is going, you know, again wiped out. So uh we're not a nonprofit. We, I didn't really know what really to do. I just thought that uh at least a drop or a prick, but in the heart, maybe we could do something. You know, if we could actually go to the houses and and give directly, you know, not hand it to somebody else to get it filtered and it stays in, and I'm not trying to talk bad about anybody, but it stays in a in a airplane hangar for years to come and nothing really happens. That's literally the opposite of what I wanted. So uh, we did it again a couple weeks ago and we got together. We did this now and I thought it was a mission with 30 days that we had last time and now we did it in seven days and we even the second day we killed what we did last time and uh, I mean that by just building awareness and and funds and for the you know how gracious Miami is, I'm through and through a Miami kid. I'm from Hialeah. He said Little Havana, but I'm you know 305 all day. I'll be here for the rest of my life. Uh, but and I want to just again the the certain um, I feel pumped up during this conversation and podcast. I was like you know when when it, when you hit legacy, when you hit uh, you know the first uh, you know Cuban American, and again not not to talk about because of that is is why you should be there, but more just because. You know, we belong. Yeah. I love, I, I love that. You know, and um, you know, just want to do my utmost to. I know it's going to be very, very difficult to, to even a prick or a drop in a community that, 
you know, I was fortunate enough to go once, and honestly, that'll probably be the last time I go until it's free. And uh, but you know, just hearing it every day, you know, the struggles and all this. So if we can do anything to figure out a way to make any type of impact to you know communities like Pinat de Rio that. My mom comes from, and she gave up everything. I get emotional talking about my mom, but... <laughs> my family, too. So, you know, all those struggles, they leave. They go to a country. Everybody knows the story. So if we can do anything, you know, we should. Uh, we, we are compelled to, to do so. And Central Florida, too, you know, obviously. Yeah, you know, everybody's there, and, and it looks like, you know, 92 with, uh, in Homestead and, and about going back to structure, hopefully... Uh, to answer a previous question, we do pay attention to infrastructure from under the ground up so that Miami is here 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years after this. Uh, we need to do so. And who's going to do it? If we don't do it, nobody's going to do it. Just how if Cuba doesn't do it for themselves, unfortunately, nobody's going to do it. But anyway, I'll pass on the mic. Uh, hopefully, I, I, I jerked a tear from somebody else. And, <laughs> and, and hopefully, there are resources and pockets. And... Uh, and nothing, man. Thank you so very much. I appreciate everybody here. Thanks, Mike and uh, and Mr. Moss, and and thank you guys. Appreciate it. You got a you got a Mr. Moss. You got a Mr. Moss. You got a Mr. Moss. So I, I know all that's going to be very difficult for the next people to follow. So I want to take an opportunity to thank Petey the dog for yeah. not making a lot of noise <laughs> during the podcast. Petey has been Petey has been a model guest. Uh, didn't even ask for any of the wine. He's just been happy with his water. He got a bad haircut. He got a bad haircut. He got, got a the terrible worst haircut fucking haircut in the history of dog haircuts that I gave him last night. Only, uh, only Nick. He, I mean, thank you. That's, are, are we are I, we actually going to do a Q and A now? We're gonna okay. So I I brought that up. Now I want to just two more people I want to bring in. Uh, Diego and Susie, if you want to just say a few words about just because I want people to know what you're about to be given there's some gifts waiting for you upstairs and I know that you two contribute to something yeah, yeah. so, so uh, that is uh, I think what we've done today here is amazing and there's a lot of talking points that are close to my heart about the community and about who we are as a society and how we evolved as a society because I think that is ever so prevalent into what we do today and who we become tomorrow right uh, visionary that said look see something very true to me that is look I didn't know what soccer was but I invested in it because my community is bigger than who I am today as a Cuban American my wife's a Cuban American but I am a Colombian and he said I think that there's a bigger scope there's an Argentinian there's a Brazilian there is Colombians there's Uruguayans there's there's everything and and people That's like chef right like chef that, that brings you know the this, this Cuban culture into a, a, a plate that we can all enjoy and be different styles and different flavors i think those things are important to us today today right uh, i am i i like i'm a finance guy through and through originally is who i am i lent money to homes right you guys want to buy a you know three hundred thousand dollar house a three million dollar house you want to build a house that's what i do right but my passion has always been the kitchen i i am a I'm a guy that wants to barbecue i'm a guy that wants to you know be in the kitchen every single day that's that, that's what i do Outside of my world, I, I, COVID happened, and COVID told me uh, we're gonna sit in the house all day long. And I told my wife, which is hates me at this point today because I give her so many jobs, all right? Because I do finance for a day, so she just wants to go ahead and carry all all my ideas. Is so let's build a barbecue that nobody has in in Miami, that that the barrel is born. So the barrel is a 
very traditional way of cooking in South America, which is indirect heat, right? We all hang, you guys have been to a thousand restaurants in Miami of South American that you see the meat hanging, but you never see hit actually the heat. That's what we do. So the barrel is indirect heat, amazing flavor, right? Lump charcoal. You get this wood flavor, which is just, just something that nobody's ever tasted. And, and we brought it here to your house. So you don't have to go no longer to a restaurant to get that type of flavor. We brought it to your house. It's amazing. It's great. It is literally my baby project. We've won many, many awards at a lot of competitions for being a restaurant. But I'm like, I don't have a restaurant. I sell the product. And every last time I said, like, oh, you guys don't actually have a restaurant. No, we don't have a restaurant. We literally sell the product, right? So that that that's our baby. And uh, and through that through that concept that we had, uh, we started serving our signature dish with the chicharrones. We do chicharrones, which is, if you have to Hispanic to do chicharrones, pork belly for my gringo friends, but for us Hispanics, it's, <laughs> for us Hispanics, it's chichar we do a chicharron that's not fried, and you get the crispiness that is amazing, and it's just a crowd favorite. We started serving it with a little bit of my grandmother's hot sauce, and that was just a topping. That became a business on its own. So now we have Abuelita's hot sauce, which is literally the best thing in the whole wide world. Everybody tells me, forget about anything else. It's the hot sauce that is the greatest thing. So uh, that that's why we're here today, right? We support the podcast. We are big fans. Uh, we're going to continue to be big fans because we, this is literally the best podcast there is in the world. I can say it a thousand times. My wife's like, wow. Uh, wow. We do say it all the time. Jeez. She goes to me, Diego, I'll get him. Like, uh, yeah, can we throw more money at it? Because we just love it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hear the yes. That's ads at jmag.com. Right? So <laughs> she goes to me, you're not tired of just doing finance. Why don't we get to the food? I'm like, no, no, no. I let the food go through to the forecast. Um, and, uh, you know, we're just so very, you know, happy to be here with everybody. Thank you so much for everything that, that's gone on. We are also big fans of everything that has to do with giving back to community. I think our foundation, what we've done, we probably sent like 10, 18 wheelers to the West Coast, right? Probably like we always raise money, we're always in the community. Uh, we have another coffee business, so we'll talk about another time. But through all those things that we do, I think we've done three or four or five years out on the West Coast, we do a bunch of stuff to give back to the community because, like I say, there is no community like the Miami community. We're so diverse and we're so in tune to how diverse we are that I would not want to live in any other city. And I'm a real estate guy. That's what I do for my real estate, right? real estate. It is the best investment you can make in this world, right? Miami just has everything going. From what these beautiful people are doing, right? From the food, because our food culture is just blowing up to everything else that we have. It's, it's amazing. Thank you for having us, and thank you. And everybody's going to get some hot sauce. Yeah, we're all going to get some hot sauce. Everyone gets hot sauce. With a little bit of ice. Oh, yeah, but I can't crap. How do we get cheetah? Oh, yeah. Magic glasses. 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 Magic
Right. Wrap up the dessert. Uh, nice dessert. We have the Ariette Sibar. Uh, it's going to be a Majari chocolate with a hazelnut mousse, espresso ice cream, and that's it. So alongside the cigar, uh, not the obvious choice, but I went with um, sort of classic Bordeaux. So we've skipped over the river to the left bank. Um, Ponte Cane, uh, 2003. So that is Cabernet Sauvignon dominated. 2003, uh, a vintage that is well known for being the hottest on record, uh, only surpassed by the one we've just had. So, uh, very rich, um, high alcohol levels, really concentrated. There were small little grilled berries uh, at the time. But I think it's it's a bit like sort of mentally thinking this, this sort of... Uh, cherry go with chocolate like my, my idea is that instead of a sweet wine i think sometimes it's quite nice to have a, uh, a sturdy bordeaux against, against a bit yeah. of chocolate i love that yeah, yeah. yeah. there we go hope you enjoyed Good the stuff. tonight yeah thank we you. did thank, thank you. you thank you amazing and then uh finally last person i'll pass the mic to is uh jonathan drew who just on a sort of personal note very exciting for me to have you here because Jonathan is the uh, uh, founder of Drew Estate Cigars. I was the senior editor of Cigarscom magazine from 2013 to 2020, and Jonathan uh, has fed me many, many times. So I'm glad that I finally got to invite you here for a meal. I feel like I now owe you another one because of like the over-the-top <coughs> gifts that you've brought uh, that you've brought here. Uh, but just take a moment, let everybody know, you know, what the deal is with what they're about to. You got a, you get a candle and everything for this. Just so you know. yeah, yeah, you're getting a special lighter. Very sexy. Even even more even more so. I have such a fuck ton of your cigars. They're always exceptional. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you guys. So, uh, yeah, my name is Jonathan Drew. Uh, I guess every gathering, every space needs a bad guy. And that will be me. I am a New Yorker. <laughs> so, yeah, so I very much enjoy... Uh, I am the bad guy now of my of, of Drew Estate. I always say it, so it's, it's okay. It's cool. But... Um, very cool evening listening to uh, Michael and Moss. It was uh, way more than I had anticipated tonight. Um, I lost my myself in terms of being a, a cigar manufacturer, or being a New Yorker, or a graduating seventh class at Brooklyn Law School from the bottom. <laughs> pretty much the worst. <laughs> It's not easy because if you get below a C, you don't graduate. So it's a really, if you're shooting for the worst. You know. But um, listening to you guys tonight and, and uh, thinking a little bit about my experience and just a quick introduction. Um, uh, not only being the bad guy from New York, which I still love, um, moving to Nicaragua uh, from New York, from Brooklyn. Yeah. In, uh, yeah, not just to Nicaragua, but up to the north into an area called uh, Las Segovias, which is where our city is, Esteli, and our barrio, which is Rosario, which is outside the center of Esteli, and then where my factory is, the Gran Fabrica Drew Estate, which is the, the largest factory in the world, 
um, we're in a little barrio there called Oscar Gome, and since we put in the streets, the adultine and everything with with our 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 Alqueria, um, our government, Nesteli, which is the, the most Sandinista of all the Sandinistas, um, we built our town, which became Oscar Gomedos, <clears throat> which is very interesting for a New Yorker who couldn't even really say, you know, por favor, agua, like that was about the end of it. <laughs> so landing in Esteli in, uh, in 1998, right after the hurricane, after Mitch, uh, where 10,000 people had died in between uh, Nicaragua and Honduras and literally moving there then, uh, just a lot of the conversation tonight took me back to a lot of pain, took me back to a lot of uh, what I consider to be where we eat apples sometimes to eat or bought a car and so that a week later it just didn't work out and we needed the cash to, uh, to take a little lot from Padron or from Placencia who allowed us to to part with them, the uh, us as a uh, a little a little New Yorker arriving in Esteli, where mostly the cigar makers were all Cuban, right? Another interesting link to to tonight. Um, I think maybe an appropriate cigar company for tonight might have been Jorge Padron or, or Fuente or one of the legacy, you know, uh, Cuban families. Listening to you guys really numerous times I said, wow, some of my colleagues uh, would have been, would have been a new, just a beautiful addition to where you guys took us tonight in your journeys and how they overlapped. Uh, but I think that's also interesting, like I said, being the bad guy, also being the, the outsider, right, from most of you guys in the room being either really, we have a gringo, so I see a little bit of love. <laughs> Don't worry. Yeah, but still, I won't keep you guys all night. Don't worry. But um, what I will do though is I'm going to stand up for a second. And uh, good thing I do because my legs were getting numb. Uh, I'm going to introduce you guys a little bit to. You guys had a little conversation in terms of Michael, Mr. Shepard, Valentine, and I losing your, your local touch and losing you know your heart as your growth that we've all watched and admired and learned from and continue to learn from. You're an inspiration uh, to me. Uh, that's for sure and I'm sure to everybody in this room, not, not a question, just seeing everybody's energy. Really, it's what it is, the zone. But um, uh, tonight Nick asked if, if you know, for, for us to come, I said, hey, I'm gonna come, I'm gonna bring some nice Nice products for everybody, whether you smoke or not. Probably all of you have a friend or family or somebody you work with. So I'll tell you what's in that little bag. Next to it is a little lighter and a cigar from a, a farm that's actually here in that little white box. That's in Orlando. It's the only farm for tobacco, for premium tobacco, um, in Florida. And I, uh, the, the guy who grows that farm knows that farm. I'm the, the godfather to his kids and I process all that tobacco. So whenever you think about a premium cigar, you think about the seed, you think about the country of origin of where it's from, um, and then there's the processing, what you do to the tobacco. So everything that I gave you guys tonight or that we gave you from Drew Estate, I gave you a couple of these and a couple of that. This one I'm kind of, kind of excited about. It's kind of outside my space, you guys. We did this thing with Metallica two weeks ago, we released it, it was kind of cool. 
with uh, the main guy, the singer James. We did this product with him. You got one of those. No one's ever really seen that. Just came out last week. This is the biggest brand in the United States. Assets about 50, 60 million bucks a year are doing that. Undercrown is a beautiful product that I wanted to share with you guys. This, this shit I call one on the factory floor. And that tobacco is uh, represents our city, Esteli. We're again probably the bad guy, but but uh, so this is a big part for us. This is every you guys know the Pappy Van Winkle. You guys have probably had the Pappy Van Winkle. You guys have got some for me right now. Yeah, you got some. I got some Pappies and I got some more, whatever. But uh, you got them in the bag. So Pappy Van Winkle, I, I work with the family on this product. It's it's a pretty cool thing we do. Uh, um, it's been a journey in and of itself. And then lastly, I, I gave you a few of the, uh, or one or whatever, of the Undercrown 10th uh, year anniversaries, which are really, really special. So uh, I'll walk you through that stuff. But really, tonight, uh, I got to say, is, is that um, it brought me really back to our start, to moving to Esteli, moving to, to Nicaragua in 98. Um, I got into the scar industry back in 96 in New York City at the World Trade Center after bombing the first time in 93. We opened up in 1996, Super Bowl Sunday, and uh, our New York roots connected with our new Nicaraguan roots, which when I moved to Nicaragua, not only did we just get through Hurricane Mitch, but the country also was going through a civil war. So the civil war that really ended in 92, where Violeta Chumoro became the president of the country, it was really by the time I started really hanging around there, which was 96, 97, moved there 98 full time, and I lived there 14 years, 19 and a half years I was there in full. And then, and through that time period coming there and actually listening to so many Cuban families, I know obviously living here in Miami and being here, um, coming into a city where you have to wait a year and a half to get a phone, forget a cell phone, we got cell phones 10 years ago, but to get a phone, or where chicks are wearing men's clothes because there's no clothes and if you want to buy them you buy them by the pound and being in the second biggest city in the country and there's three restaurants and more of these kind of things it wasn't one street one house on any street in anywhere in our city that didn't have bullet holes written in every single house. And here's this great all of a sudden walked through. I had a little snub nose. I thought I was shit in my pants. I was like, if I had to, I'd pull the shit Because people liked it. And they helped. They were like, yo, this guy's crazy. I was the only gringo in the city out of about 100,000 people, period. No questions asked. I don't give a shit what anybody says, believe me. And we were the smallest company and the worst company that's ever lived in premiums. So I was like, so. We would always proudly say we're not, you know, we're not a fifth generation Cuban cigar manufacturer because we were like Drew Estate, we were New Yorkers. So we had to throw our shit in the arena and we came in heavy, but we were really just weak and we were fragile. And a lot of the Cuban older guys, they liked us, they laughed with us, they drank with us, they, they just thought we were fascinating, that we would just be larger than life, but we were really puny. And it was really incredible, just an intense moment and we managed to to find our style and our flavor and it came from graffiti and it came from hip-hop it was very urban back in a time where where now it's it doesn't matter if it's played or not because it's not what we are now but tonight you got this stuff anyway we grew from the smallest company and i said the worst company because i know it wasn't just the smallest 
we were the worst. And every decision we made was terrible. And we've grown now to be the biggest cigar company in the world. I sold the business to uh, Swisher Sweet. And after, uh, yeah, that was 2014. For a couple years, they sent me on the road to chat a chat about the company, whatever, and then they brought me back on as president. Since then, we've definitely, we're about 52 or 51% of what Cuba makes in a day of premium cigars for, for the world consumption. We make it our factory. We have, uh, anyway, I can go on, but here's the deal. We got this stuff for you that's in those bags. I really appreciate you guys. Upstairs, we have some ashtrays for everybody. So whether you, like again, whether you smoke or not, maybe you have somebody you want, somebody special you want to bring it to. Otherwise, you guys will have one for the, for the crew here. And uh, thank yeah, you. Congratulations. No, thank Amazing. Thank you so Thank you. Amazing. Thanks for tonight. Thank you so much. So I know we talked about. Um, it's gonna come out of the thing. Oh, it's good. Now that you said that, featuring the hubs. I'll make this quick. I'll make this quick. Um, so, Lawrence, my name is Lawrence Popritkin. I mean, there is no Latin in that, right? Uh, raised in Argentina for 12 years. Long story short, but anyways, what I wanted to say is that um, I married uh, a girl from Hialeah. First time I Let's ever. Go. <laughs> first time. First time I ever went to Hialeah was to pick her up on our first date. I didn't even know what Hialeah was. And all I want to say is that the Cuban culture. So her mother moved in with us about ten years ago. Too long. The only thing I want to say is that. It's a, it's a really interesting culture, one that I learned through her. She was born, she was born in Hialeah, she's a Marielita. I was not born in Hialeah. I mean in, in Cuba, Marielita? Yes. Right. Came in that... Yeah, same, same shit. But, but all I wanted to say is that when you, when you guys talked about, you know, the challenges in, in, you know, with all the influx of people coming into Florida and what are the challenges, and all I have to say is her mother, so her mother, born and raised in Cuba, I don't know how old she is, in her 70s, whatever, been living with us for a while. And I think that, the lar I think that one of the biggest challenges is going to be to make sure that these people have a voice. Because it is very easy, like this lady has lived with me for like 10 years and she just wants to share her experiences. And her experiences are the real deal. I mean, these are, I don't know how old, 70 years old, I don't know how old she is. But like, this is a lady who has lived through the best of times in Cuba and the worst of times. Yep. And it is so easy for her to start talking and for you to just kind of like be like, okay, I'm just moving on to like my life because this lady just won't stop, right? And I, but I really feel, I just wanted to say that, and there's a lot of influential people in here, and I, all I wanted to say is that I think it is important, one of the biggest challenges has to
allow these people to have a voice. Because this lady has lived through stuff that I would never, I mean, I lived through the military regimes in Argentina, and I thought, you know, here I am, you know, I lived through that. I remember being 12 years old, and my father saying, Larry, you know, the military has taken over the country. You got, this is nothing compared to what this lady has told me over the years. And I think that I, again, there's a lot with her, but I, I, I feel like one of the largest, one of the biggest challenges has to be a lot of these people. They, it has to be to allow these people to have a voice. Because if we quiet them, because they're inconvenient, because they're so, um, they're, they're so off touch with what's going on today, right? Because they're still living in that, in that world. Mm-hmm. But they have so much to share. And if you don't allow them to have a voice, we're going to... Yeah. Well, I mean, but, I, it, but, it, but it's our job, right? As a, as, yeah. a, as a younger generation to be like, I would say, a boombox yes. to what we've been through. Not us. I won't say us. What we've been through. What our families have been through to give us the opportunity to be able to do what we're doing now. Yes. And that's really like... Because the older generation, they all sit by a ventanita and they they drink coffee and they talk. And, you know, everyone sees it as like ventanita culture, but it's not just that. Like we have dumbed down that culture to a fucking extreme. Really what that culture represents is the culture of an oppressed people, right? So if we, us, that have the opportunity to say, okay, yes, this is who we are, but now let's, let's give it. Let's give it a, a louder voice. Let's give it a bigger meaning. And the bigger meaning, whatever it is, whether it's building a company that's on the worldwide stage, building a company that's on the worldwide food, food stage, right? Because Cuban food didn't matter before June 9th. It does matter now. And that's kind of like when people ask, how do we keep this city current? As in to like, how do we not lose ourselves to like all the money that's coming today is by not forgetting those stories, right? And it takes us to not forget those stories. That's our last generation, right? Because right, 100%, 1,000%. That is, that is... Whatever they say and how they communicate, it's so different than how we communicate. But it, it's also, it's, it, there's also, it's a multi-layered thing, right? Because people like my parents wanted to assimilate to American culture to give me an opportunity. They didn't want to make themselves a big deal. They didn't want to teach us Spanish at home. They wanted us to be American because they wanted us to have an opportunity. Now it's our job to realize the fact that we have the responsibility to make sure that people don't fucking forget. And, and that's giving a voice to a, you know, everyone that's talking, drinking coffee by a window eating croquetas and pastelitos. And that's why me and Nick have this conversation all the time, which turns into a, a bunch of shit. But it's really it's really just more like, you know, people have dumbed down Ventanita culture to this thing, but there's so many real facts and real shit that's being spoken there that people that people fucking forget, right? And and it's our job your job, your job, my job, his job, so many people's job to make sure that people don't forget. They're not allowed to forget. Around me, they're not allowed to forget. I know around Nick, they're definitely not allowed to forget. So, I mean, it's it's just more of the pushing of the conversation. Like, allowing them a voice is for us to say, shut your mouth, let them talk. 
whether it's through us or through other people, that's allowing them a voice. Right. That's different. That's that's different. You guys have lived together for 10 years. That's a totally different subject. To be fair, he does more than I do. Yes. Yes. I'm not allowed to cry. I'm not allowed to cry. I think that's probably, that's probably a good note. To, we, we said it when we did this similar format with, uh, with Norman Van Aken. That Pancom podcast is really just our elaborate ploy to lure people in with food and throw a bunch of Cuba in their faces. Uh, so, yeah, I love that. That's good. Yeah, that's good. So, so our trap has worked yet again. Uh, it's the most expensive propaganda trap uh, in in is it in podcastdom. Oh, podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, uh, yeah, it's 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 a very Cubanly trap. Yeah. Um, uh, Michael, you should know this is your plan is the only plan that she believes. I told you. That she believes. Yes. That she I love that. We've arrived, people. If the Cuban people believe in my flan, then we have fucking arrived. <laughs> we have fucking arrived. The flan with the mushroom caps? No, there's another one. You haven't been there. Yet. There's another one. There's another one. There's Oh, boy. Okay, it's, all right, all right. Yeah, yeah. We're not going there. We're not going there. Not I've going. said it a minute. Yeah, got Nick, to wrap it up. Yeah, wrap yeah, this so, shit show up. Yeah, Jesus yeah, Christ. So, thanks, thanks to, to thanks anymore. to everybody. Thanks to everybody for for joining us here. Um, I want to also thank all of the Ariette people who are not named Michael no. Beltran, Manny, Adrian. Andrew, all the people uh, who helped make this a thing. Uh, Val Falsetto, who also was a big uh, player in making this a thing. Um, uh, and because, uh, as Mike knows, I'm not going to be able to help myself. I'll throw in my two cents on the Cuba thing. Uh, I think, you know, I, I think it came up like you know we got to give people a voice. We got to amplify things and this, that, and the other thing. Yeah, you know, I, I won't get into my whole history with it. Um, but I, I had an opportunity that. You know, certainly I didn't create it for myself. I sort of stumbled into it, and I, I went to Cuba uh, four times if you between 08 and 09, if you count the time that they turned me away and told me I was never welcome back because of all the contra this is that why I was I love up to Nick. while I was there. Uh, and, you know, ever since July 11, of, and this is a thing that we've, you know, said multiple times, we'll expand on it in an episode that has been recorded but not released. You know, a lot of the, the talk of the Cuba thing has been, and I think this applies to any country, any cause, any whatever, has been about, oh, you got to amplify those voices, you got to amplify this, you got to give them a voice. And yes, that's true, but it's not a Cuban issue, it's, it's a human issue. Yes. So sure, tell people what other people are saying, but also participate. If you have an opinion on Ukraine, if you have an opinion on what's going on in Nicaragua, if you, then you don't have to be Cuban. Have an opinion on Cuba and say what you think and participate in the conversation and contribute in some way and leave yourself open to being wrong if that's part of the thing but participate contribute it's you know it's closer to us than a lot of things and really the distance doesn't even matter right so participate in that or whatever it is that you feel strongly about it doesn't have to just be about amplifying other people's voices you have your own and it's as important as anything else um, so somehow great. I've managed yeah. to like commandeer the thing. Uh, I'm glad I stopped at like three drinks. I don't know if I would have been capable with more. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. So that's it. That's it. It's over. This is the end of the wait, podcast. Wait, wait. Before it's, it's over. George, oh. thank you. No, thank you. I appreciate you. You're one of my great friends. I thank appreciate you. all of your wisdom and everything that you've added to my life and everything that you've added to this whole thing. You are an inspiration to so many people. Thank you. And now for the lightning round. And I'm, No, no lightning rounds today. But thank you again, man. I really appreciate you. Always here for you. We're done.